And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when uh, almost anything can happen, and uh, most of the time it does. And again, as I've said a million times before, this will make one million and one. What used to be confined to this time slot now is occurring around the world, in fact, across the solar system 24-7. So if you're following any kind of news, be it mainstream or Facebook or Twitter or, uh, you know, what are those others? Uh, Twilight Zone? No, Twilight Zone. I'm I'm thinking of uh, um, some of those kind of off, you know, Channel 8s, all those bizarre websites that are so obscure that only a certain portion know where they are. All of this is part of the mix as we uh, enter this extraordinary period, this window where the physics, the hyperdimensional physics, the hyperdimensional astrology um, makes possible all kinds of things that were not possible before. Um, we're going to start this this evening with uh, news as we do every uh, time we start a show. Uh, we have some extremely sad news to report this morning. Um, there is there is uh, a tragedy unfolding in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Uh, as you know, Wisconsin has been the focus of national international attention because of the Rittenhouse trial, which had been going on for the last uh, week or so, maybe two weeks, which culminated a couple of days ago with a um, acquittal of Rittenhouse. And then about an hour in a little town, 73,000 people, an hour north, kind of northwest of uh, Kennesaw in Waukesha, they were having a Christmas parade tonight, this afternoon, and uh, a red SUV at high speed drove through the crowd. And uh, there are at least 20 people injured, uh, unknown numbers of deaths, and those numbers will probably change the uh, Local police chief had a briefing and said they will not have any more news until one o'clock Central Standard Central Standard Time tomorrow afternoon. So we will not know the full details of the tragedy, but it fits in to the meta theme of the conversation that we're going to have with Rick Levine uh, throughout the rest of the show in the morning, because eerily he and I discussed this. In fact, this very kind of meme. Uh, as as will become clear as we go through the conversation. So that's why I wanted to lead with this tonight. If you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on tonight's banner, which says the clock strikes midnight, what's hyperdimensionally coming this Christmas Eve uh, with Rick Levine and Georgia Lambert, uh, you will see um, if you look right under that banner, uh, I'm sorry, if you click on the banner, that will take you to the guest page. And if you look under my items, fast links to items, click on my name, and that will take you to the uh, story. There's a rather gruesome video there, which uh, I hope you have a strong stomach. Um, again, this is part, I believe, of a larger meme that is unfolding, and it's no accident it's unfolding now, and all that will become clear as we go through the morning, hopefully. Item number two, um, La Palma. Um, 
Oddly enough, La Palma is going to enter into our conversation in a very strange way later in the morning. So for those who have not been following the show, I mean, really? La Palma is a little island in the Canaries off the northwest coast of Africa, which uh, contains a volcano, which last blew up something like 39 tetrahedral double 19.5 years ago and is now erupting with all kinds of dramatic uh, lava and, you know, explosive eruptions, ash falls, ground swelling. The reason all this is relevant to anything is because in 1949, there was a major earthquake which split the island in two. And so one half is kind of resting by a friction on the other half. And this is a very old uh, shield volcano. And so if there is a sufficient ground tremor, i.e. earthquake, or the ground swells too much because of underground gas and magma pressure, half of that island could slide, ultimately at several hundred miles an hour, into the Atlantic Ocean, creating what is known as a mega tsunami. Now, again, these are all based, this, this latter part is based on a, scientific geophysical model that was published back around, I think, 2001 in peer-reviewed literature. There are now modelers who, using more current data, say that there is little chance this could happen, this worst-case scenario, but little chance does not mean zero chance. So I've advised everyone on the East Coast, and I advise everyone listening who's anywhere near a shoreline because this uh, tsunami would not be confined to the North Atlantic Basin. Uh, put uh, this link on your phone. Get an alert when there's a major seismic event. Uh, have a go bag packed. Be ready to leave Dodge. Uh, if you're on the east coast of the U.S., you'll have about nine hours, between six and nine hours. If you're in Europe or in Africa or in uh, on the coast of North and I'm sorry, South America or in the Caribbean, you will have less warning. So you want to act accordingly. But uh, again, this is going to figure in our conversation later in the morning. And so you might want to pay very close attention because a low probability event, if there is the um, intrusion of artificial technological means, can become a higher probability event, as we will discuss. Item number three, part of our discussion this morning relating to what's coming astrologically um, toward the end of the month, toward the end of December, has to do with this entire new level of seriousness and mainstream attention to the concept of UFOs, which, of course, have now been codenamed UAPs. You know, what, what's in branding? What's in a name? And item number three is the uh, New York Post story relating to a conference on our future in space sponsored by the Ignatius Forum, uh, that I believe stands for Ignatius Loyola, who founded, among others, the Jesuits, the Jesuit order. And you, of course, are well aware of those intriguing associations. Um, this conference was held uh, just last week, November 10th. In fact, if you look down at item number four, here's a direct link to the YouTube uh, video of the conference. It's about two hours. I strongly, strongly recommend it to your attention because the participants include a kind of creme de la creme of who is not only 
in the space business, but the top spook in the U.S. government, Avril Haines, who was the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, which was a coordinating office of the 16 other intelligence agencies under the umbrella of the U.S. government, and she reports their results, their findings on the relationship of our national security to the world directly to the President of the United States. Well, she attended this conference, and among others, like Bill Nelson, the current administrator of NASA, um, uh, Abby Loeb, who was the Harvard astronomer who has been kind of uh, touting the artificiality of an object we discussed here extensively some years ago, Oumuamua. Remember the first interstellar object detected zipping, and I mean zipping, through the solar system, making a right-angle turn around the sun and then leaving for forever. Um, there were some other attendees uh, who were at the conference. Anyway, the whole two hours is in that link. You want to, in your copious spare time, watch it because, you know, as Dan Rather said, uh, the camera never blinks. You need to not only listen to what they're saying, you need to see the body language, particularly Ms. Haynes, when they say it. Because Avril Haynes and uh, Bill Nelson are on the record. In fact, Bill Nelson is item number five. This is a Twitter link direct to him talking about the plausibility of real ETs, real extraterrestrials, as being behind the UAP slash UFO phenomenon, which the U.S. Navy has been confronting since, I think, about, uh, at least they're admitting to it, since 2004. Avril Haynes makes very similar comments that it is not beyond the pale to consider an extraterrestrial explanation for these objects, these vehicles, performing extraordinary uh, definitely anti-gravity and anti-inertial maneuvers over U.S. battle fleets because, according to both Nelson and Haynes, um, they don't think it's plausible to posit this kind of extraordinary technology to any other terrestrial power, China, Russia, Iran, etc., etc. In other words, the top spook in the country, in complete contrary position to the CIA's previous uh, stance on this subject, i.e. the Robertson panel and the disinformation and the poo-pooing for decade after decade after decade. I mean, this is being raised to the level of national attention, national importance, and national action. So it's in this milieu that we go to item number six, because a few days ago, on Monday of this week, actually of last week, since Sunday technically begins a new week. We're in a new week, guys, tonight. Um, Bill Nelson went on record, that's item number six, and there's a link there to uh, his comments in space.com. The Russians ostensibly performed something so stupid, so bizarre, so outrageously dumb. They blew up one of their own satellites. At least that's what the U.S. State Department and a range of other agencies, intelligence agencies around the planet, are telling us. And I'm going to say right now in the news section that uh, I don't think that's exactly what went on. And we have standing by Robert Morningstar, 
to give us an update. He's been kind of polling the delegates and doing background research, and he has some very interesting information to impart in our first segment tonight. So we're going to go to Robert momentarily. I do want to point out number seven is a very detailed visualization, a 3D computer model video, really cool, um, on the cloud of debris that this satellite destruction, explosion, uh, created in low Earth orbit. And there are some very remarkable uh, dynamics there. And what I find so interesting is that they were created like overnight. Normally, when you do real 3D modeling of something this complex, it it takes a while. I mean, come on, it's CGI, it's computer intensive, even with supercomputers, it takes a while. This was like ready in a couple of days. So what does that tell you? Anyway, item number eight, this is really intriguing because we've been watching and waiting and kind of speculating about when would this subject be moved beyond the intelligence community into a larger governmental framework, i.e. the Congress with hearings and testimony, military witnesses, the pilots who encountered these UFOs and F-18s that left them in the dust like they were, you know, standing still, that can loiter forever compared to an F-18, which actually can only spend like about an hour on station before it had to land back on the carriers, the the Nimitz and or the uh, Roosevelt, and refuel. And they described a lot more interesting things that were visible just in the gun camera footage. Well, anyway, this transition between the Pentagon, the intelligence community, and the Congress has now taken place in the persona of uh, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, who is the Democratic senator from upstate New York. Uh, She is on the Armed Services Committee, and she is proposing an amendment to the annual Defense Appropriation Act, which would set up an actual office, an official office under the U.S. government to deal with UFOs as part of the governmental structure of the executive branch of the United States of America. Oh, how things have progressed. So you want to read that story in Politico, and then you're going to want to read the comments. Then you're going to want to Google what some commentators are saying over in Reddit in some of the UFO forums. And that rabbit hole will take you an entire week until next weekend when I'm hoping to have someone on who will actually deal with some of the policy implications of this movement from amazing and bizarre to mainstream. So without further ado, um, let me open the line here and see, Robert, are you there? Mr. Morningstar. Yes, I am. There you are. Okay, Robert Morningstar, who was our correspondent in uh, New York City. You can go and read his bio on the other side of midnight. Among other things, he has been part of the Merchant Marine. Did you ever serve in the Coast Guard, Robert? Uh, I served in a paramilitary organization that served alongside the Coast Guard. I Mm. was a member of the Department of Homeland Security for 10 years. In fact, I'm a plank member. So you're the perfect go-to guy. So Thank what you. do you got for us, starting with the Russians? We'll get to uh, uh, Waukesha in a minute. Right. Well, the Russian uh, mystery. Get a little uh, closer to I, the mic. I agree with you. I agree with you that the this is a mysterious event. That <laughs> seem, 
doesn't seem to be in keeping with the intelligence of the Russians. They are not stupid. No, people. no, of course not. Right? This right? is this is like doing you know what in your own bed. Uh, yeah, yeah, but I don't think the Russians are doing that. Not at all. Um, the, uh, I told friends uh, to listen in today because I said the subject would be UFOs and space war, and I think that uh, just getting down to the nitty gritty, it's um, it's reminiscent of what was going on in 1963 here in New York City right now. It is already November 22nd. It is the 58th anniversary of the assassination of President Kennedy, who was one of my childhood heroes and a mentor. And um, I have for you two short documents that I think the world needs to hear. President Kennedy on November 12th, 1963, discussed the same topic that we're discussing tonight with Premier Khrushchev. And on that day, he issued a directive to the Central Intelligence Agency, as well as the Department of Defense and several other bigwigs. It's called, we refer to it as the Angleton Memo because it has the Oh, name, for James Jesus Angleton. James Jesus Angleton, indeed. Big, big CIA so, guy. Well, he was a chief spook. Chief exactly. counterintelligence. Here's an interesting thing. You know, counterintelligence is a very mysterious term, but it also refers not only to the intelligence agencies of other countries, but extraterrestrial intelligence. So this is, this is a, a very big thing. So if you would permit me, I would like to read you this directive that I believe was JFK signing his own death warrant. And this occurred after the conversation that he had had Premier Khrushchev on the hotline. Now, the hotline was not a telephone. It was actually sort of a teletype machine, like email. So what I'm going to read to you uh, secondarily is the communique. It's very short between uh, Khrushchev and President Kennedy. But right now, this is November 12, 1963, top secret memorandum for redacted Central Intelligence Agency, the director. That was John McCone. So they scratched out his name. It should read, Memorandum for the Director John McCone, Central Intelligence Agency. Subject, classification, classification review of all UFO intelligence films affecting national, uh, files, excuse me, affecting national security. As I discussed with you previously, I have initiated, redacted, and have instructed James Webb to develop a program who was then head of NASA that's right with the Soviet Union in regard to space and uh, and human uh, exploration it would be very helpful if you would have the high cases reviewed with the purpose of identification of bona fide as opposed to classified CIA and U.S. Air Force sources. It is important that we make a clear distinction, including the knowns and unknowns in the event the Soviets try to mistake our extended cooperation as a cover for intelligence gathering of their defense and space programs. When this data has been sorted out, I would like you to arrange a program of data sharing with NASA 
where unknowns are a factor. This will help NASA mission directors in their defensive responsibilities. I would like an interim report on the data review no later than February 1st, 1964, signed John F. Kennedy. Now, this is a, a very interesting part of the document. Handwritten on the side, it says, response from CAB. Now, I'll tell you who that is in a second. And it says, response from CAB. Angleton has MJ executive. 11, 20, 63. Now, who is CAB? CAB refers to General Richard Cabell, who was the number three man at the CIA mm. and who was also the brother of the mayor of Dallas. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So he was actually fired, but it turns out that um, – um, Dulles was also fired, but it's come to be known that even though they were fired, they were still operating from the farm and were actually at the farm. That's a CIA facility in Virginia overseeing the assassination. Now, let me go to the other document, which is equally intriguing. And then I'll tell you why I brought up the first document with regard to Abel Haynes. Nikita Khrushchev's uh, the hotline. Now, this memo is called is top secret Umbra. Umbra, of course, means shadow. So it's a very, very high level um, classification in the NSA. And this says NSA intercept of the hotline ComSec file dated 11-12-63, the same day. From OOTP to PUSSR, subject UFO working groups, and it's uh, directed to the, um, the White House uh, staff, the director of the CIA, the director of NSA, NMOC, Naval Meteorological and Oceanographic Command, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Secretary of State, and National Security Council. And now I quote, this is President Kennedy speaking, Mr. Premier, a situation has developed that affects both our countries and the world, and I feel it is necessary to convey to you a problem that we share in common. Mr. President, I agree. So I will distinguish the voices that way. Mr. President, I agree. As you must appreciate, the tension between our two great nations has often brought us to the brink of showmanship with all the tapestry of a Greek comedy, and our impasse last year was foolish and deadly. The division that separates us... This was the Cuban Missile Crisis he's referring to. Exactly. The division that separates us is through misunderstanding, politics, and cultural differences. But we have one thing in common, which I would like to address to your working group on the UFO problem. Yes, yes, I agree with your assessment. We nearly tied the knot that divides us permanently. Our working group believes the same way as yours. The UFO problem presents grave dangers to our countries and to the whole world. If we allow suspicions and miscalculations to force our military defensive systems to react to this problem, God will never forgive us. Then you agree, Mr. Premier, that we should cooperate together on this issue. Yes, Mr. President. Mr. Premier, 
I have begun an initiative with our, and with our NASA to exchange information with your Academy of Sciences in which I hope will foster mutual concern over this problem and hopefully find some resolution. I have also instructed our CIA to provide me with a full disclosure of the phantom aspects and classified programs in which I can better assess the situation. Can you persuade your KGB to do likewise? Mr. President, I cannot guarantee full cooperation in this area, but I owe it to future history and to the security of our planet to try. As you must know, I have been somewhat limited in my official capacity as party chairman to order such cooperation in this area. We too feel the UFO is a matter of highest importance to our collective security. If I can arrange for a secret meeting between our working groups at a secret location and at a time designated by you, I feel that this much on my part can happen. Mr. Premier, If a meeting at this level can convene, it will be an important first step. It will lead to more dialogue and trust between our countries and reduce the ever-present threat of nuclear war. Yes, Mr. President, it will. Then we are in agreement. Yes. End of memo. There was... So this this is an official transcript which has been discovered by some very ingenious archive researchers that was a yes, transcript indeed. of a of a either a memo or an actual phone call between the premier and the US president in 1963 November 12th both documents are dated no uh, November 12th 1963 exactly 10 days before his assassination I was going to say a few days later he would be murdered and a yes. few months later, Khrushchev would be put under house arrest, stuck on a rocking chair in the porch of his DACA outside Moscow, never to be in power again. Yes, that was October of 1964. And I remember it very, very vividly because I was watching the World Series between the New York Yankees and the St. Louis Cardinals. <laughs> and it was in the seventh inning stretch that they announced that Nikita Khrushchev had been deposed. It's... Uh, It's imprinted. It's embedded in in my memory. So the reason I brought up the first memo is because I watched the, by the way, the Ignatius uh, conference. Yes. There was an interviewer whose name is Addy Ignatius. And so I think (laughs) there's there's a lot of Iggy's, a lot of Iggy's around here. Anyway, such a sense of humor. The reason I brought it up is I saw Avril Haynes discussing the UFO issue. And she was asked about documents that she had with categorizations of UAPs. That's another joke. (laughs) (laughs) She said that they had categorized 144 UAP incidents since 2014. Don't you find that number remarkable? Yes. And uh, <laughs> the, the other part was that the Nine categories seconds. that she described are exactly the same ones that President Kennedy was demanding of the CIA. I'll tell you what, hold it there. I'm going to hold you over for the next half hour. Rick, just, you know, take, take, a, take a, like a little vacation. Oh, I have something for Rick, too. Okay, so just, just, hold, just hold it there, okay? 
Okay. My guest this morning for the first segment and moving into the second is Robert Morningstar, who has more than a passing familiarity with the military, with the Pentagon, with the U.S. Navy, with John Kennedy, with all of this. And believe me, it is incredibly relevant to my forthcoming discussion with Rick Levine tonight, and you will see how shortly. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Are we already under attack? Stand by. I think you're looking with this great reset, you're looking at Mr. Globaloni's efforts to move everybody into a cashless society, which, you know, like it or not, that's a one-way mirror, folks. Because at that point, you're not dealing with a currency. You're dealing with a corporate coupon that they can adjust the value of at the push of a button, depending on whether or not you're good little boys and girls. And if you're getting into a system where all of the infrastructure of financial clearing is in the hands of the bankers, that's not a system you want to go into. You look at the West, and more importantly, if you look at what some people call the Anglosphere, the, the Western powers that are English speaking, the United Kingdom, Canada, United States, and so on. I do think it's the case there. They're using a health crisis really to drive a, a political agenda. And the health crisis itself is largely blown way, way out of proportion to what's actually the case. If you look at what Mr. Globaloni is up to, they are recreating slavery. And the, the thing that is unique about slavery is they now have the means of perfecting the capital because now they can literally implant your body with the means to track you. It's not going to go away overnight, but there are already uh, I think some hopeful signs of cracks beginning to appear in the edifice. This is Joseph P. Farrell. And for all the news the media doesn't like you to hear, tune in to the other side of the news.
And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, November 21st. And in New York, it's the 58th anniversary on November 22nd of the death of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Okay, Robert, uh, please continue. Well, regarding the the recent shootdown, and I think that's the right word, it's, it's, uh, as opposed to shoot up. <laughs> yeah, I saw I saw the um, the anti satellite test that was conducted by the U.S. Navy a few years ago. You remember when Kim Jong Un was rocket rattling? He sent a destroyer, a missile cruiser out into the Pacific, and we destroyed one of our own satellites, which don't didn't seem to me a, a big deal as far as a, a lot of debris. But I saw well. The, the reason strike. was it was a very low satellite in very low Earth orbit, and the debris mostly re-entered. And it was so important that Bill Gates, uh, Robert Gates, I'm sorry, who was then Secretary of Defense who had broken his arm, was in a cast. He literally flew to Hawaii to be on station for this test. And I did a whole article on the the Enterprise Mission website detailing the alignments, where the Mm -hmm. moon was. I mean, this was not a trivial test. This was a biggie, and it was completely submerged in the news under it's just the Pentagon doing its usual thing. Well, that's great because you know the, the, the event very well, and I know it very well, too. And I saw, I saw a video of the strike. It was a kinetic weapon mm-hmm. that struck. Now, here's the important thing with regard to the simulation or the visualization, as they call it. The debris of that strike destroyed the satellite, and the ejecta went up. Now, this photograph of this not photograph the simulation looks to me like the object was struck from above and the debris trail was hanging down. downward right yep so it says to me that the strike did not originate on the surface of the earth but mm-hmm. came down on that satellite if we are to believe another cia visualization which I don't really Well, trust. remember there is an Emily Dickinson component. Part yes. of the way part of the way you get people to believe the lie is you got to mix in some truth. So for the yes. people who are not celestial mechanicians who have no idea about orbits, you give them real reconstruction of the real trajectories, but you give them a fake cover story. Right. So with regard to the memos, I'd like to go back to that discussion between Khrushchev and President Kennedy where they described the UFO issue as dangerous to both our countries. Now, why? Because it turns out that there is one faction of UFOs that have been playing chicken with the United States and Russia, or had been at that time. It is a fact that several times during the 1950s and 60s, we were put put in a condition of DEFCON 1 by the appearance over the North Pole in Canada of multiple objects. Bogies. That were bogies. Bogies. They were, actually, the Air Force gave them uh, another one of those 
uh, pet names. They call them fast walkers. Oh, yes, yes. I remember Jacques Vallée writing about them. So the fast walkers were fleets of UFOs which would appear over the polar regions and then start to overfly Canada over the Dew Line and the Bemuse Line, delayed early warning system and ballistic missile early warning systems, and they'd be picked up and drive people in uh, NORAD crazy. They did. We came within a whisker of war, global thermonuclear war, at least twice because of bogeys yes. on those long-distance early warning system radars. Yes, and the same thing was happening to the Russians. So these... Uh, fleets of UFOs would race over Canada and then suddenly stop, dead stop, boom, and then vertically shoot straight up into outer space. There was another incident which occurred on February 12th of 1961. The first UFO crisis that President Kennedy suffered was 12 days after his inauguration when a huge fleet of UFOs was picked up by NATO overflying Eastern Europe. It flew over Eastern Europe, the uh, satellites of the Soviet Union, they flew over East and West Germany, over France, over England. Then they turned north, headed uh, over the North Sea, then turned uh, back to the east over the Baltic and overflew the Scandinavian countries and it back over Russia. And then they disappeared. So these are three instances. There were two, at least two ballistic missile um, simulations, and then this other one that overflew uh, all of Europe. And this is something that I believe some faction of the UFO entity was trying to force Russia and the United States into miscalculating and going to nuclear war. Yeah, I mean, come on. Look, Ma, no hands. Those four suckers are just too dumb. They just couldn't hold back. They had too many weapons. Total plausible deniability for whatever councils upstairs someone is answering to at whatever level. Yes, so we have waited 58 years for Avril Haynes to come out, (laughs) you know, twice in the last uh, week and a half to discuss this issue. And now she's the first person to use the term extraterrestrials. And now that's twice. Once at the, well, at the Ignatius lecture, she uh, mentioned it. And of course, she mentioned it in uh, the article in the New York Post. So they are lifting the veil. But at the same time, I have to forewarn the audience that this could also be a false flag because my dear friend, Dr. Carol Rosen, who was assistant to Werner von Braun, says that Werner von Braun warned her that one of the deep state plans was to take control by staging a fake UFO invasion. So we don't know which is which, even now. Mm. And some people are talking about a prospective uh, alien invasion uh, in 2024, as if it's already on the calendar. Now, I would like to say that in the past few years, we have seen several excellent Hollywood movies depicting exactly this, alien invasions. And the two movies that uh, I consider outstanding are The Battle of L.A. and Battleship. Now, Battleship is interesting to me because it was made with the full-hearted cooperation of the United States Navy, including 
the destroyer John Paul Jones, and uh, of course the hero hero ship of the movie is the USS Missouri, which ultimately is uh, turned around and uh, destroys the uh, the alien communication system. So the medium is the massage, <laughs> which has turned into the medium is the message. You know, yes, he yes. really says the medium is the massage, and you can see when you're watching television. McClure was thinking about a hand that's in your brain, you know, massaging, making a space for you to be receptive to the meme that they're about to uh, to plant. So we have been massaged <laughs> and messaged. And then over some. I tell you over. what, I want to ask, to, I want to hold you over till the third hour. So put yourself on mute, listen to, if you can, the rest of the show. I want to go to yeah, Rick. Can I say one thing for Rick Levine? Yeah, sure. Especially. The date of November 22nd, 1963, was especially chosen by the Baal because it corresponds astronomically, star date, to the date on which Osiris was assassinated. I have a book in my hand called Echoes of the Ancient Skies, The Astronomy of Lost Civilization by a German named Dr. E.C. Krupp. In this book. Oh, I know. I know, Edward. You know who we used to be? He used to be no. the head of the Griffith Observatory and Planetarium in Los Angeles. Oh, for decades. You know, this is one of the greatest astronomers uh, published. In this book, he revealed that to me. He said that Osiris was killed at a time when Mars was passing through the constellation Scorpio. Yep. And this constellation Scorpio has, uh, up until recently, had the biggest star in the solar system called Antares, which is also a very diabolical star. It was viewed as an evil star and associated with uh, the, the devil named Belial. So, mm. Well, you know what the name Antares means, don't you? Um, it's Aunt Aries. Mars is Aries. It's against the opposite Aries. of exactly. It's the against opposition Aries. to Aries. Yes. Now here's the last little point. On the day that President, on the night and the day that President Kennedy was assassinated, there was a conjunction of Mars and Venus in the constellation Scorpio. And on that morning, President Kennedy said to Dave Powers, his chief of staff, he said. No, last night would have been the perfect night to assassinate. I remember him. that, I yes. Think. Yes. And I think this is the meaning of And there's one so final component. There's, there's a, and listen to yeah, hang on, Robert. There's one final component. Okay. That, that conjunction and that, and, and Terry's itself is in, of course, almost direct alignment with the 4 million solar mass black hole at the center of the galaxy, which modulates, as Rick and I are going to discuss in the next couple of hours, a lot of astrological hyperdimensional stuff here on planet earth so it all the 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 the, the dots are all converging well that that detail that you just revealed brings into the picture the presence of the black sun yep and i'll leave it at that okay thank you very much all right see you in, a, in, a, in an hour and a half or so okay um before we get to rick i, I want to do something special here and then you'll kind of understand why so just kind of stand by and, um, well, just enjoy. You know the day destroys the night. Night divides the day. 
Professional astrologer since 1976, Rick Levine has become a respected leader in the global astrological community. He is the past president of the Washington State Astrology Association, co-founder of StartQ.com, a founding trustee of Kepler College, and co-author of eight years of Barnes & Noble's annual Your Astrology Guide. Rick wrote a daily horoscope column for nearly 17 years, delivered via the internet to millions of readers per day through tarot.com. The expanded daily Planet Pulse is still available on Instagram at Rick Levine Astrologer and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Rick Levine Astrologer. He is the subject of a DVD, Quantum Astrology, Science, Spirit, and Our Place in the Cycles of History, His internet videos reach tens of thousands of people every month, and in 2018, he was awarded the prestigious International Astrologer of the Year Award by the Krishnamurti Institute of Astrology in India. On a recent lecture tour to Istanbul, Rick was awarded the coveted Fomalat Award for Astrological Excellence by the Turkish School of Astrology. His current video teachings are available at Patron.com slash Rick Levine. Without further ado, Rick, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. God, with an introduction like that, it sounds like I should have already died. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's still hope. 
Any, There's still hope. For all but, of but us, not, yes. But not for us. Hey, uh, I, 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 I wanted to credit, before we get into this, um, Kinthea and Keith working magic behind the scenes to get that musical slice from the doors up so I could actually use it as part of your intro. That's what, that's what real teamwork on the Enterprise. And, 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 and I want to say thank you to them also, and I'd like to say why that piece is an important piece for for now, for this year, although I have to admit that I miss hearing Jim Morrison live. I saw The Doors twice uh, live, um, but that song in particular has a very special message. But before we get there, I just want to complete the uh, thing that um, that um, uh, uh, your previous guest, uh, is it Robert? I don't oh, Robert Morningstar, yeah. Right. We've never, he and I have never had the privilege of, of meeting um, but I, but I think that we should. Um, first of all, um, I'm looking at a chart for November 22nd, 1963, and Venus and Mars are in fact at the same degree, although it shows on my chart that they are at 20 degrees of Sagittarius because of the precession of the equinox. They were actually aligned in the constellation in the sky. Um, of Scorpio oh. and your remark about Aunt Aries or anti Aries, as I like mm-hmm. to call Antares, um, is that in ancient astrology, in, in modern astrology, every planet connects with a sign and every sign connects with a planet. In the ancient tradition, there's a very complex but beautiful m- mathematical geometry that determined um, this whole schema called the Thema Monday, the theme of the world, Monday meaning the world. And um, in this, Mars um, was actually the planet that was the ruler or the planet associated with both Aries and Scorpio, one as a um, daytime um, star and the other as a nighttime star, if you will, star, a loose use of the word, um, not, you know, not meaning... uh, Um, a star in the modern sense, but a planet included. Now, the thing is that's of interest is that Mars is connected with both Aries, the beginning of spring, and Scorpio, which is the beginning of life um, in the yearly cycle, and Scorpio, which is really the beginning of the death part of the cycle, because it's in Scorpio, Halloween, when the veil gets thin, the leaves fall off the trees, and something it's, it's no longer obvious on the surface. The magic is happening deep inside in the darkness that somehow prepares everything for the life again next year. In modern astrology, um, um, Mars has been kind of demoted from connected to Scorpio and has been replaced with Pluto, which, of course, is even more interesting because Pluto is Latin for Hades, which is Greek for the hell realms. Mm-hmm. And so we have this wonderful connection between the, the evilness or the, the redness of the star um, Antares being a little bit of Mars, a little bit of that warrior right in the midst of the death uh, of Scorpio. So uh, thank you, Robert, for bringing that up. And it was just an interesting little, um, little dance um, to be aware that somehow these things that go on upstairs um, in the physical realms of the cosmos certainly seem to be um, integrated into the 
um, symbology of how the physical realms here on Earth play out, which is what we're going to talk about next, yep. I assume. Yep. Well, I wanted to talk about memes, and I wanted to talk about the astrological forcing function bringing these memes into the 3D realm in which we live, primarily by means of consciousness. And uh, what kicked this all off is I've been getting from diverse sources an overwhelming redundancy. And in science, when you see things, the same signal redundant over and over and over again, the idea is you pay attention. And And from sources that are not connected, I've been getting this square, 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 and it appears as a right triangle. In astrology, as you and I have well discussed, squares are configurations of planets in the solar system relative to the Earth that concretize the higher dimensional information and energies that we've talked about extensively that bring it from the hyper realm into the 3D realm. In other words, kind of fashion reality. And so the way I interpreted this eventually, because it takes me a while to you know, get the message, was, wait a minute, squares, squares, squares. Maybe this is uh, trying to tell me I should be looking to Levine and squares in astrology in charts and when they're going to occur between now and, let's say, the end of the year. And so I did. I looked you know, that up and instantly I saw Saturn and Uranus. I picked up the phone, you answered, which is kind of amazing, and we set this up because I said, Rick, something is going to try to concretize a meme. And I said, there are two ways this could go. The normal meme, because the square we're going to talk about is exact on Christmas Eve. That's the weird Christmas Eve part of this this conversation. It's actually, in some places, it'll be exact on Christmas Eve Eve. But it's but because of time zones, it's um, a window. In it's, the United States, it'll be on the 23rd, but in some places, it'll be on the 24th of December. Yeah. Oh, how interesting. So then I'm saying to myself, okay, if this is supposed to concretize something hyperdimensional, what could that be? Well, what's the one holiday in the Western tradition, in 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 Christian tradition, which is observed and is is basically a kind of made aware through all other religious you know persuasions on the planet whether you're a buddhist or a muslim or a hindu or you know heaven knows what christmas still is part of your calendar it's part of the observance and the associated means that go with it and everybody you know goodwill toward men on earth that kind of thing everybody feels uh, you know, better around Christmas, regardless of your religious persuasion. Then I said to Rick, but suppose you wanted to, as a bad influence, you wanted to malevolently intervene in that good feeling of humanity united by introducing something evil, something awful, something malevolent. And then, of course, this afternoon you had this horrible drive through of the Christmas parade in uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin, and untold numbers of deaths and horrible tragedy and, I mean, just unspeakable. So it looks to me like the the prediction that somebody is playing fast and loose with the memes at this time of year is well, unfortunately, well underway. 
Yeah, I, I, I'm right with you right up into the point where you say somebody, because I don't know that it, that intelligence on the cosmic level requires a human being to actually be in control. But yeah, no, no, that, no, no, I but that I, I don't mean just human be- Somebody to me is anybody with a consciousness in any dimension. Oh, okay. All right. All right. And, and from that standpoint, um, I would certainly um, say, and maybe we can wait um, until after the break, to spend a few minutes as to why astrologically and hyperdimensionally, physically, the 90-degree angle is where the action is. I like to call it the point where meta becomes physical. Hmm. Okay. Well, we do have like about a minute, so why don't we set up a tease for the next segment? Yeah, and also I'd also like to just uh, tip my hat also to Robert to his reference to McLuhan, uh, because <laughs> although, as you know, Richard, we've known each other, geez, I don't know, 25 <laughs> plus years, um, that you know, astrology is how I look at the universe. However, Marshall McLuhan um, is, I think, maybe one of the most important, not understood um, uh, social analysts of our time. And not only the medium is the massage, which everyone says the medium is the message, but his work about um, the relationship between technology um, and human consciousness is absolutely critical. Maybe we can do a, um, a whole show on that some other time. Hmm. Well, he and uh, Emily are two of my favorite, um, shall we say, social commentators. <laughs> because again, Dickinson and her, you know, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. I, I think McLuhan must have been reading Dickinson. Because he said a lot of truths, but he didn't hit him exactly on the I'll head. I'll tell you who McLuhan was reading. I, I, he, he, since, he, since he was a professor of English, I'm sure he was reading his Emily Dickinson. However, I know that he was reading and understanding his William Blake and his James Joyce. Oh, yes. Because of so much of his material is built upon their understandings. And even titles of his book, like The Medium is the Massage, this is a James Joycean pun, <laughs> and he um, is a fan and a scholar um, of Joyce, one of the few people around who actually, I think, understood uh, Finnegan's Wake. But that's another story. Of course. <laughs> My guest this morning for the next several hours to be joined by Georgia, and we're going to have Robert come back, is uh, Rick Levine, a foremost global astrologer, a firm believer I should say, understander of the hyperdimensional aspects that are the cornerstone of astrology. That's, uh, that's how it works, Carl, who thought it might have to do with gravity. No, no, not gravity, something much deeper and more profound. So tonight we're going to be talking about memes and implantation of memes and concretizing alignments, energies, resonance patterns, And what the heck is going to happen on the evening of the 24th or 23rd, if you expand the window? That's our subject. And we're going to go in directions that I guarantee you will be surprising to one and all. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Join us, if you dare. We shall return.
the other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, the 21st of November, 2021. Lots of 20s and 21s in there, are there not? My guest this morning for the next uh, two and a half hours, Rick Levine, one of the foremost global astrologers. And Rick, I think what we ought to do to kind of set the stage properly is to begin back way, way, way back with the most obvious and simple and elementary of questions. What the heck is astrology and why should we pay attention to it at all? Okay. Well, let's get into the way back machine Peabody and dial it all the way back to when we basically were just looking at the rhythm of the days and nights and the moon growing in its, you know, light and, and, Somehow we began to look for meaning and we began to realize that there were repetitive cycles that were going on in nature, that were, there were yearly cycles, weather cycles, there were cycles of day and, and, and night. Um, and I think that from uh, as far back as we can reach into prehistory, um, there were people who uh, paid attention to the signs of nature which included um, the movement of certain objects in the sky. You know, to the ancients, um, they didn't know that a what we call a star, you know, was a corona effect on a thermonuclear, you know, reactor. <laughs> they didn't know that Mars was a solid planet. They just knew that there were things up there, and some of the stars wandered, and stars that wandered were called planets. And they began to watch these wanderings and they began to realize that there were relationships between um, what was going on up there and what was going on down here. Um, and uh, and um, yeah, I would imagine um, that, um, that we will discover, even though I said that the thermonuclear reactor and stars, that's a bit of the party line. And of course, there's the whole electric universe um, and the realization that, like gravity, well, things are not necessarily, it's, it's, you know, what, what they seem to be. It's even more interesting than that, Rick, because they're both, both camps are not totally wrong 
and they're not totally and right. not completely right. The real thing that fuels stars is the connection to higher dimensions. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the, well, and that's the real thing that fuels everything, is it not? Well, not to this extent. Because I've okay. actually looked at the numbers and I've done the equations, and you can account for most of the sun's energy as basically gating through from a higher dimension of, of information and energy, which then degrades to heat. There's a small component, which is thermonuclear, you know, fusing atoms and all that. But the right. primary driver of all stars, which the Egyptians somehow knew, remember the Egyptians thought of them as portals, as yes. doorways to somewhere else. Yes. Well, they didn't think of that idea on their own. I mean, you're, you're, you're laying out of the foundations of astrology is assuming that we are not heirs to much more sophisticated ancient ancestors, and then we devolved and had to kind of climb back up the consciousness tree to figure all this stuff out from scratch. There are overlays of ancient legacies, like in the Egyptians, who understood that stars are doorways to other dimensions, and that opens up such a panoply of possibilities. Uh, it and- totally does, and I'm totally with you there. So the idea that planets circling around a star modulate, like turning a rheostat up and down, that information, those energies, and therefore affect consciousness on one of those bodies orbiting the star is totally in synchronization with the big model. They're not just just constrained hydrogen bombs. Stars are much more interesting. Much. Yeah, and, and Richard, I'm sure you, you know this, but most people think of the solar system as a bunch of objects going around in these endless circles around the center, the sun, when in fact we know that the sun's motion um, off the plane of the ecliptic actually creates the planets moving much more in the course of spirals, almost like coils on a step-down track. They are creating vortices in the exactly. torsion field as we move through the galaxy, exactly. tilted yep. at a at a 60-degree mm-hmm. hyperdimensional mm-hmm. angle. And that's not an accident. That's part of the redesign in our model of so, the entire so, solar system. So, Richard, let's. You, you, you said something just now that you know how important it is but it's important for understanding this whole what's leading up to Christmas Eve. And you said 60 degree, 60 degree angle. Yep. And what most people don't understand is that, that um, the universe really consists of frequency and angle. That incidentally is a wonderful Bucky Fuller quote buried in one of his books. But the idea that, that the angles created by um, intersecting waveforms is really what drives astrology. And it turns out that the ancients knew this, and they knew that the 90-degree angle, uh, the square, which you referenced in in my introduction, um, the, the upcoming square of Saturn and Uranus, of which we've already experienced two of them, but the third and um, and I, I want to say final, but I'm going to say nearly final one um, will be on Christmas Eve or Christmas Eve Eve. But the, the thing about the 90 degree angle is that that going back into time, what we do is we take a cycle and in order to understand it, we divide it in half. 
and then we divide it in half again. We, our calendar, if someone says to me, you don't really believe in astrology, do you? Then, <laughs> I mean, often what I'll say is, um, well, I use a calendar, you know, so of course I do. And that kind of confuses them. But if we take a moon cycle, which is roughly a month, yeah. and we divide it in half, we get a fortnight. And if we divide that in half again, we get a week. A week is a 90-degree angle. It's, although it's a human conception, it's something that it has to do with taking a lunar cycle, roughly, and dividing it in half and in half again. We do the same thing with our seasons. We divide the year in half and in half again, and, and we get you know four seasons in a year. Mm. The 90-degree angle is, makes it easy to understand a cycle. But more importantly than that, the symbol of Christianity, the cross, existed before Christianity, and it represented the gateway, the um, divine proportion into the material realms. <clears throat> Saturn, um, which to the ancients was the farthest out movement they could see. Beyond Saturn, there was nothing. Everything became fixed. You know, it was the crystalline. Yeah, it, was, it, it was basically the last naked eye planet. That's right. But, but, but that's how we would phrase it. But to the ancients, nothing moved slower than Saturn. Right. And so Saturn was the gateway from non-life to life. And in fact, <clears throat> the Greeks, um, uh, uh, Plato in particular, and, and, and Plotinus talked about how the soul had to come through the gate of Saturn and then came through each of the planetary gates. But Saturn was first, then Jupiter, then Mars, all the way down to the moon, and then here onto Earth. And the symbol for Saturn is a cross with kind of like a backwards S hanging off of it, almost looking like a backwards ST. The 90-degree angle, as I know you know, Richard, is the point of maximum interference of any two. If a cycle is 90 degrees off, that is the most that one cycle can affect another. And that 90 degrees really goes in multiples. It's really 90 degrees plus 90 is 180, plus 90 is 270, plus 90 is all the way around uh, zero degrees or 360. So now you and understand so why I got so excited when I kept seeing these damn squares over and over and over and over again. It's like somebody is shouting in symbolic language, pay attention, Dumkoff. Well, no, I, now here's the thing. The, the sun and moon square each other from Earth's point of view. We have a new moon. One week later, we have a first quarter. Yep. That's a square. One week later, we have a full moon. One week later, we have a third quarter. That's a square. There are some squares that happen every other week, yep. meaning the moon to the sun. But as you slow down and go further and further out from the sun, the relationships between these two pulses, between these two waves, between these two low-frequency notes, if you will, the intersection of them by whatever degree becomes spaced out longer and longer and longer so that when we get out to, let's say, Neptune and Pluto, they make a square to one another um, about every hundred years. <clears throat> yep. It turns out that the, that the rhythm of Saturn and Uranus is an important rhythm 
but it's one of many. And the significant thing astrologically right now is we are coming out of um, a, um, a little bit over a half of a century of astrological rock and roll where we've had rare cycle upon rare cycle close together in time, one after another, and that really, I would say, began to <laughs> culminate um, back in um, January of 2020. Ergo, ergo, opening, this, opening your segment with the doors. Exactly. And, and so Saturn is the, is, the, is the delimiter. There is nothing to the ancients. There was nothing out past Saturn. Saturn was the end of the line. It was Father Time. It was Kronos. It was the Grim, Grim Reaper. Saturn was death. Saturn was, 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 was the limit. Saturn was the limit. And, and so, in fact, it was the discovery of Uranus in the late 1700s that blew our damn minds wide <laughs> open because overnight two things were established. One was our little neighborhood of action was three times larger than we had thought for the last few thousand years. And number two, it's like, oh, my God, there are things out there that we can't see that actually are really out there. Mm. And so with the discovery of Uranus in the, um, in, in the um, late 18th century, um, we basically began a process of breaking through to the other side. And 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 if you follow the rhythm of Saturn and and um, and and Uranus, I mean Saturn and Uranus joined up in um, in 1942, and then again in 1988. You know, it's about a 45, 46 year cycle. But the fact that this one, this one, this year, 2021, um, this year's Saturn Uranus square, which actually is three of them because of retrograde motion. We had. But hang on, uh, hang on, hang on. You got to explain that. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to in a second. We, we, the, Saturn and Uranus squared exactly on February 17th. And then because of Earth's cycle within the planets, um, all the real planets, meaning um, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, they all appear to go backwards in the sky. They don't really, but it's called retrograde motion. A lot of people know about Mercury retrograde only because it does it more often than other planets, but all the planets go retrograde. And so often you have a, an exact 90-degree angle, like Saturn square to Uranus, that is happening exactly on December 23rd, um, uh, of 2021, but it already happened this year on February 17th and June 14th. And so what we're going to get at the end of the year is a culmination of this stuff that's been cooking all year. However, and this is a huge however, we're getting the Saturn-Uranus square in a year that's following a year that is so extraordinarily unique, whether it, whether you just simply focus on um, the pandemic of fear and, and its primary symptom, <laughs> um, COVID-19, or whether you look at the various governmental tensions that, um, that culminated in, in an attack on the Capitol building on January 6th. There were so many things about 2020 that were 
absolutely extraordinary. And one of the things was <clears throat> that there is a cycle that happens three times a century, that Saturn and Pluto. And that was exact, it was exact on January 12th, 2020, within a few hours of the first reported uh, COVID mortality and the announcement of the virus from Wuhan. Now, th that in itself is an interesting thing, but Saturn and Pluto align three times a century, but they do it in different signs. And remember earlier we talked about how Mars is at home in Aries and even in Scorpio. Well, Saturn is at home in Capricorn, and the last time Saturn and Pluto lined up in Saturn's home sign of Capricorn um, was about, well, within about a month and a half of Martin Luther nailing the 99 theses on the wall of the small church in Germany that began what we call the Protestant Reformation. I like to call it the Protestant Reformation mm. because that is the level of what was set up in 2020. And if you were alive during Martin Luther's life, you might not have realized how much that event was going to impact the um, culture on the planet over the next 10, 20, 50, 100, 300 years. And I'm saying the same thing about what was going down in 2020 is at that level of proportion, which is why now the break on through to the other side. Remember, Saturn is the wall between here and there, and Uranus is the lightning strike that breaks that wall down as if it never existed. Okay, That's let me let me let me interrupt is breaking through to the other side. Let me inter uh, back to the doors. Let me let me interject a couple of things. Yeah. Are you familiar with what else was happening on February 17th, 18th of this year during that first square of, of In Saturn? In to disclosure. Uh, well, kind of. Okay, it's 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 related by way of Bill Nelson. That yeah, was that was that was the day NASA chose. Remember, they can choose their time frames to do stuff. That's the day that NASA chose to land the Perseverance rover on Mars. Yes. And all hell broke loose because they revealed in those first few images stunning truths about Mars that never had been revealed in the previous 30, 40 years, you know, since 76, since the Viking landings, including the fact that Mars has a blue sky. And it so discombobulated the agency that their prime television channel, NASA TV, was out of whack for months following that because they kept censoring planned press conferences on the Perseverance mission because they were looking for the mole, looking for who leaked that which should not be leaked, which was timed, obviously, by those planning the mission to coincide with the first Saturn Uranus 2021 square. Yeah, it was also the week of the impeachment. Yes. Yeah. So there are levels of le within levels within levels. There are folks that use this as a technology, never admitting it. The closest they ever came to admitting it, remember Nancy Reagan admitted that she, you know, convened astrologers to kind of chart Ronald's uh, uh, public uh, calendar, et cetera, et cetera. Well, yeah, it was Joan Quigley. I've met Joan Quigley, and um, and she was um, a competent astrologer. 
Um, and um, yeah, that, that's all true. But here again is an interesting little thing where where you and I might divulge or, or, or separate just a touch. It doesn't <laughs> change the conclusion. But in my experience, these things happen on these dates, whether or not there was whether or not it appeared that anyone was in control. See, making that's them. the conversation I've been having with so many people. Is it is it reality or Memorex? Which comes first? Is it? And I get it. And here we then go into we slip into the multi-dimensional how things from other dimensions kind of leak. Which into are, the which, three are which, which which is part of this hyperdimensional resonance pattern, I, I which guess. governs reality. So I'm always trying to figure out. Is it that pattern, that matrix, or is it consciousness in 3D here, which is trying to, you know, harness the river, trying to push the river, trying to use this as a technology to accomplish more limited human aims? And that's the art form. Some you can say it's it's, one. Some you can say it's both. And some you can say, oh, it's, it's ritual, people trying to do this to take advantage of the energy, the information. Here's a really quick example of how, of how this works. Um, in 1898, and there's many events around, the, these dates that I'm going to throw out now are all related to the Saturn-Pluto conjunction opposition cycle. And I don't want to get too, too deep in, into it other than saying in 1898, there was a Saturn-Pluto opposition. Mahatma Gandhi spent most of the year in jail in South Africa. Hmm. Uh, getting apartheid, getting the Indians excluded from apartheid in South Africa. At the next opposition in 1931, he spent most of the year again in jail. He led a salt march to the sea, and Indians were boiling water and making their own salt and therefore not paying tax to the British Empire. Hmm. That was at the next opposition in 1931. Within four days of the next conjunction in 1947, um, India and Pakistan were granted freedom, but of course they forgot to tell us when we were in school that although that was granted without a shot being fired, about a half a million um, you know, Hindus and Muslims were killed in border skirmishes over, um, you know, over Kashmir. But that was 1947, within a few days of the exact conjunction. Now, here's where it gets crazy. The next exact conjunction was in 1982, and that was the year the movie Gandhi came out. <laughs> now, 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 the point is that this is just one sequence of, of events, and we can do this with lots of different things. But you can't make it up. And yet, where, how does reality conform to these kinds of rhythms? Well, let me go back to what prompted my phone call to you and you being on tonight. When, okay, I, when, when I saw, you know, that it was a Saturn-Uranus square, it yeah. went like ding, 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 because Saturn is reality, the matrix, the frame in 3D we, you know, live with. Exactly. But, but Uranus is revolution, so I'm saying, okay, obviously this is going to be a trigger for some kind of huge paradigm shift. What's the hugest paradigm shift we could expect in this year of trends? Well, I think it's the ET, UFO, extraterrestrial paradigm. And that's when things get really interesting because look at all the run-up to ultimately the big D word we're all looking at, disclosure. Yeah, yeah, no argument there. And I would suggest that 
it is one uh it may be the most important i don't that's not arguable as far as i'm concerned but it's one of many many other things you know we look at the last time saturn and uranus were exactly opposite each other um that was in uh the fall of 2010 um and there was a bit of a financial meltdown then you know um and we can track this cycle back and again it's often disruptive things but my case for why this is so important this year is that because it's occurring on the tail end i've only mentioned two or three things barely but it's about five or six different cycles that kind of make a confluence um, of of different cycles that are all meeting right now that come to this point which i think in 2021 is aimed at the week before Christmas. And again, we have to understand that these are these are cosmically timed cycles. Sometimes the events are exactly on that day, and sometimes they're days or weeks or even months later when the other shoe drops and we go, ah, so that's what was going on. So we may not get the fullness of this, um, you know, uh, that week before Christmas of, of this year, um, but it's going to be set up. And I think that it's going to take all the way through 2022 before we have a perspective of what the hell really went on here. Hmm. Well, last night uh, I was talking with Michael Lee Hill, my guest, and he's kind of in contact with some, shall we say, others that don't live here. I love that phrase. Those that that are not from here. Anyway, he said very flatly that 2024 is when it's all going to hit the rotating kitchen appliance. So we're looking at setting up ripples that will echo down through time and will become more manifest in the, as Washington loves to say, the out years. And of course, what's 2024? It's probably the most important election in the history of the United States of this experiment of freedom versus tyranny, you know, all the usual, uh, just by accident. And then in that same time frame, 24, 25, we've got the end of the Kali Yuga, according to some calendars. Some and, calendars, yeah. And the question then is, is it a transition that is gradual? Or <clears throat> if you apply a hyperdimensional frequency analysis, do we suddenly shift from the Kali Yuga to what we haven't experienced in, what, 12,000 years, which is what, the uh, Tetra Yuga? I don't know, but but it's, but it's, it's for those, the so-called golden age. Who don't know what you're talking about? The yugas are the great years in the Hindu tradition that bond a bit to the idea of ages based upon the procession of the exactly. equinox, and exactly. we're at the bottom of the pile right now. So the question is: Are the transitions gradual, or are they abrupt? And unfortunately, I've got data that supports both models. I'm well, tra- yeah, I mean, uh, Darwin said they were gradual and Velikovsky said they were abrupt. Take your pick. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. All right. We are literally at the bottom of the hour, so let's hold it there. My guest of the morning is Rick Levine, who is certainly one of the planet's uh, foremost hyperdimensional astrologers. I wonder how many astrologers, if you woke them up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and you started asking them questions, I wonder how many would agree with the doors. You're on the other side of midnight. We shall return. You know the day destroys the night. Night.
Side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side is midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. On this Sunday night in the Land of Enchantment, November 21st, in New York, it's already the 22nd, the 58th anniversary of the murder of John Fitzgerald Kennedy, who, in my opinion, tried with his uh, opposite member, uh, Khrushchev, to usher in this period, this extraordinary time of transformation, too soon. He may or may not have known there was a ritual calendar run by uh, the bad guys. And what he and Khrushchev were trying to do was totally premature and, in fact, uh, not part of uh, the the matrix that uh, someone else was deemed crucial to maintain. Or, it could, in other words, there, there, we, we could speculate endlessly. The point is that um, that which Kennedy tried to do now appears to be underway and underway with a vengeance, including bizarre events occurring around Russia, a satellite destroyed. And as Robert pointed out uh, in the first segment, the data, the actual analysis of the objects, the fragmentation of the spacecraft appears to be descending into a lower orbit as opposed to ascending when we, the U.S., conducted another test uh, many years ago. Uh, My guest this morning is Rick Levine. We're talking hyperdimensional astrology and what is the meaning of all of these squares that have been coming at me from left and right and center and, to me, redundancy 
is the massage. Rick, you're back. I like that. Redundancy is the massage. You know, McLuhan also coined the concept flipped out. He said that with the advent of electric technology, we've developed an exonervous system that we've actually flipped out. And I agree with that, and I would take it a step further, and that is we've flipped out and we're, when we are psychotic. <laughs> and, I, and I don't mean that to be funny, because if it was neurosis, we could deal with it via our own talk therapy. But, you know, a, a, anyone who knows psychology knows that with a psychotic, the more you talk between the sides, the crazier it gets. Well, let's, let's get very specific, okay? Uh, look at this horrible event, you know, just a few hours ago in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Was it planned, designed to introduce terror and horror in the Christmas spirit into the meme? Or was it part of this unconscious fabric so whoever was driving the car was responding to demons beyond his or her control and literally was the servant, the robotic, you know, uh, autonomous uh, driver, the arms and legs and motivator of this horrible tragedy, but completely unconscious of them being in service of something ugly and dark and horrible. Yeah, I would say yes. To all of that? (laughs) Come on. You only can pick one door. The lady or the tiger, you can't have both. Well, but in the quantum perspective, that's not true. Oh, come on, come on, come on. That makes science totally, you know, nonsense anyway. So we need data to decide because the only way we're going to control this is to find out what really goes on. Yeah. Well, you, you lose me there because I don't know that we can know. Oh, well, see, that's a real fundamental difference in perspective. If we can't know, then what's the point of having the conversation? If we're we're just telling everybody it's terrible, it's going to get worse before it gets better, and who says it's going to get better? No, okay. I I believe, like the late Carl Jung, that as long as we do not deal with our individual um, complexes, that we will be forever responding to signals that create events that are quote-unquote fate and outside of our own apparent making. Um, I, I recall Jung um, once, once wrote, uh, bring, me a, bring me a healthy man and I'll cure him. You know, <laughs> we, think that we think that we got it together, um, but, but whether or not the person driving was, you know, was um, under some post-hypnotic, um, you know, suggestion based upon some dark training or whether that person was unconscious and just in the moment. Um, the fact is that um, there is a connection between these kinds of behaviors, whether they are, you know, um, mass Um, murders or mass suicides. I mean, we can look at the astrology of the moment and we can see the connections, but I don't believe that we can see whether or not there was consciousness. I mean, um, you know, deep consciousness or or not in operation at that moment. This is a Turing machine question. Hmm. Well, you have to be able to imagine something before you can see it. 
if you if you are presented with a pattern but your model is insufficient to account what's really driving the pattern you'll you, you'll never get an answer you'll never get there well so, that's true but we can imagine patterns that are unconscious and respond to them you know again i don't know what the percentage is these days 80 percent 93 percent you know of what goes on in our nervous system we're not aware of um well and so we well, don't, you know <clears throat> we, don't, we don't have to be aware of what we're doing to do it okay let me then frame the question a little differently and then I'll give you some personal data that may may help. Do you believe in the idea of conscious, either extraterrestrial or extra-dimensional possession? Another yes. consciousness taking control of a, quote, normal human being and forcing them to do things they would not normally do. I, um, I, I would say yes, with a caveat that it's not a light switch of on, off, control, no control. I would say that there are always extra dimensional um, um, factors that are not in this time frame and not in this dimensional frame that are influencing what we're saying, thinking, doing, etc. Okay, because I have, you know, empirical reproducible evidence of exactly that kind of external uh, yeah. i.e. dimensional control and I think anyone who's paying attention could probably find those same experiences if they were you know open to actually what was going on in the moment so that opens the doorway to are certain people I want to I want to phrase this carefully are certain people dependent on when they incarnate in which signs when the physics when the matrix is established are they more likely to be controllable or could this influence anybody at any time dependent on unknown factors that we can't put our finger on in other words do you have to be conditioned to accept this extra dimensional influence or can it attack and overcome defenses of anyone at any time because they simply have more power than humans do yeah again I think we're looking at a sliding scale this is something I've given a lot of thought to um, you know in the past decades um, I, I, I think that it's not so much about any one factor in someone's chart um, I think there's different things that can add up to um, let's call it receptivity or susceptibility um, one of the things that I've been tracking, um, which is, uh, I think you'll find interesting, is the correspondence between um, people who are sensitive and or have experiences um, of either direct communication with um, either extraterrestrials or interdimensionals or simply consciousness without a physical body, you know, psychic medium type stuff that people who have that going in their lives to a higher extent, their charts seem to conform to a sevenfold geometry. No, you're not kidding. Degrees, you're not kidding. Degrees, not 60 degrees. It's a bit unnatural, so to speak. Well, it's, 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 it's seven, seven is 51.4. It's exactly correct. Some, yeah, for something. This came up last night because Michael uh, Hill is one of those people. Dr. Yeah. Dr. Bruce Solheim is another one of those people who's been on the show 
We've had extensive mm-hmm. discussions. And <clears throat> oddly enough, I seem to be another one, but I'm not having direct conversations with anybody. Yeah. When well, I you see, and then there's different, but, but then, so on one hand, you take a chart of like some of the best known um, psychic oh. mediums um, on the planet, some people who have real, you know, um, uh, fame and street cred, so to speak, of being able to do this. And you look at their charts and, and where other people seem to have a lot of trines, that's one third of a circle, squares, one quarter of a circle. Their charts seem to be filled with one seventh, two seventh, three sevenths, you know, like portions of seven pointed stars. And yet you find other people who don't have that geometry and either have either studied or learned or opened themselves up and have some of the experiences. But then there are people who just simply have charts that in some level are so, um, how do I want to say this, geometrically self-contained, it's almost like there's no place for odd angles to get in. Um, um, and that's, I don't mean that exactly. I'm saying that kind of metaphorically. Uh, and so, yeah, I think there is a difference in different people's charts, but I don't think it's like what sign they were born in. It's the actual geometry or the geometrical pattern. It's the interplay of, of the all the frequencies. It's all the interplay of all the frequencies in their chart. Yes. Ah. And of course, we also then need to, we need to recognize that if we're mapping uh, the Sun, Moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, oh, let's say maybe 10 or 20 or 500 asteroids or maybe 20 or 30 centaurs and maybe 30 or 40 um, Oort belt objects that we're still only looking at maybe, what, 150 different objects, whereas NASA tracks about a half a million things going around the sun. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't have all the data in front of us. Well, but not all objects are created equal. In our, in our model, in our equations, the prime, I would agree de- with that too. the prime determiner is basically angular momentum. So either big guys moving in the plane of the solar system or littler guys moving at steep angles like Pluto. Which Pluto, yeah, and this is a conversation that I've had with Fred, Fred Allen Wolf um, because angular uh, – um, uh, uh, Fred Wolf um, explained to me that it was Isaac Newton who actually ter- had the term gravitational potential, and that formula, Pluto, is outstanding. Well, yeah, because it's A, farthest away. Because of the tangential force. And then it's at an angle. It's 17.2 degrees to the angle of the the ecliptic. So so what I I think I could do is I was recommending to an astrologer, hint, hint, you can get rid of most of those objects. You don't have to clutter your screens with noise. You can focus on the big guys and those with high inclinations that are relatively... Uh, in our neighborhood, and that reduces the clutter to a manageable level. And when you start looking at those angles and those interplay of frequencies, the idea that this one-seventh comes up again and again and again is, I mean, come on, seven is the symmetry spins of a tetrahedron. And, you know, that angle, 51.4, whatever it is, that came up extensively. Um, Hill, in his actual physics experiments with frequency determines that that's 432, 432 cycles per second, which has in the technology he's created, 
a profound and positive effect on, among other things, water. And water is most of what humans are made of. So I'm looking at the science. You're looking at the symbology and the celestial mechanics, and there is an intertwining of the conversation. Yeah, there is, and 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 the the, the actual number is fifty one point four two eight five seven one four. You know, non repeating. Oh my God! Forever and ever. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah, which also then two sevenths of a circle becomes a hundred and about a hundred and three degrees, and three sevenths of a circle becomes about a hundred and fifty four degrees, and 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 those angles, most modern astrologers. We, except for those who have um, studied with me or with a few other <clears throat> um, 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 trains of thought in modern astrology, do not use the seventh harmonic or the division by seven um, or the fifth harmonic, the division by five, because they don't divide evenly into 12, 12 signs. I think that's a huge mistake. Oh, it's an enormous mistake. That, yes, yes. Yeah. And, and the division by five, you see also, but you don't see that. <clears throat> you don't see that in extraterrestrial or in extracorporeal consciousness. You see that instead in high-level creatives like, geez, like Mozart or or William Blake or um, you know or or um, people like um, Ram Dass and Sri Aurobindo in in, in mystics. You see that that division by five, because the division by five creates the golden mean, um, because that's the five-pointed star creates the golden mean by its diagonals, and you get a whole different geometry. But seven is otherworldly, supernatural, and disincarnate consciousness. I've seen this again and again and again. And I think it's implicit in the physics. And the fact that I I have seen... I would agree with you. I have seen these hyperdimensional controls, what we'll call them, they vary with time. The control is never 100%, and it varies with a cycle. And I haven't had enough data to actually map out, which which is probably the moon is a big determiner, probably major planets with angular momentum or determiners. If we get down to that fine gradient... But it is not constant. It's not like turning on a radio. And no, no, it's, it's totally not constant. Here's the problem, Richard, is that because, <clears throat> because the, um, the sun and the moon and all the planets are all moving in variable speeds in their own range of movement, mm-hmm. that, that, that the cycles aren't necessarily as regular. No, 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 no. Like but, uh, but I'll tell you one of the highest moments of... Of, of what I would call transiting septile patterning. Oh my what God. I mean by that, transiting is the planet in the moment. Uh, septile is the division by seven. And one of the highest moments of, of, of multiple planets, of uh, five, six planets conforming to a sevenfold geometry was on the morning of September 11th, um, 2001. There was like something came crashing through from the other side. Regardless of what your political views are about it, that event was a total septillion type event because it was like otherworldly. It was like faded in the moment. Uh, another uh, a, a couple of people with very high 
um, high incident of sevens in their chart, the sevenfold geometry, is someone like David Bowie. He's a damn alien. <laughs> no, I'm, I, I mean, I don't mean that to be funny. I no, mean, no, no. Like, I, I, I look just, yeah. Now, the other guy I'd like you to focus on is Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> yeah, Who, where I'd is like he from? No, I'm, I'm yeah. a very serious yeah. question. Can you do Zuckerberg's chart? Because I guarantee I have his data. I don't think I do. Well, I don't think I don't think there's timed data available for him. Well, let's find out. Let's go look because I think it's crucial. Because if there's anybody who's an alien walking among us, or what I say, a member of the family, it's him. Uh, yeah, it's, he might be a, a gray in more ways. No, than one. no, no, no. That's that's cliche. No, no, no. Remember, there I, are there are human beings who are not of this place. Remember, I, I totally agree, with Michael. That. Not from here. And all right, so back to back to my mice. What I found extraordinary over the last couple of years since Robin died is that I have either developed the most genius level Einsteinian mice who do everything from create geometric diagrams to move things around in the house that are incredibly meaningful to me and Robin. And they've been leaning much more recently toward the geometry and toward the squares because they've been rearranging little bits of toilet paper. They love to tear up toilet paper and they're leaving it on the hall floor on the carpet in the form of redundant squares, or they'll take (laughs) the little hematite that, that she put in the bottom of the flower pot in the kitchen, you know, for drainage. Yeah. Yeah. And they'll take the hematite out and they'll arrange it on the floor of the sotillo tile in the kitchen in the form of a lateral triangle and a right triangle, a square. And they did that last Sunday night after the show I did on this subject. Well, last night I did the whole show with uh, Michael on these kinds of topics and dimensional contact and who's talking to whom and frequencies and all that. I go upstairs and in the kitchen on the counter, I've got a large plate with the sugar container, which has got a you know, lid on it so they can't get to the sugar. And then I've got pens on one side and I put two little Christmas lights that are burned out in the front so I'd remember mnemonically to order more Christmas lights. And last night they rearranged the Christmas lights in the form of a square. Mm. <laughs> so who is using the mice to communicate redundantly over and over and over again on a rising crescendo? Look to the damn squares. Right. Which brings me to the key question. You obviously realistically said that these relationships, these squares occur from sign to sign to sign as the planets orbit the sun. Where does the square of Saturn, reality, and Uranus, revolution, occur this time peaking on December 23rd, 24th? By by the way, if your life was a Philip K. Dick novel, the origin of those squares were becoming from you. Big deal. (laughs) I don't believe it for an instant. Do not believe it for an instant. Okay. Um... The, um, the, what we have going on right now is Saturn is moving through the fixed sign Aquarius and Uranus is moving through the fixed sign Taurus. Um, um, Uranus has been in Taurus for about four years and will be there for another three or four years. 
and Saturn is on a two-and-a-half-year run through Aquarius. And so these squares all through 2021, mid-February, mid-June, and end of December are, are all from Saturn in Aquarius, um, which is um, social conditions. It's uh, futuristic. Um, Aquarius has to do with, um, you know, fixed society, uh, progressive energy, um, and Taurus has to do with stability, with status quo. I think you know about Taurus. Yeah, that's my sun sign. That is. <laughs> By the way, have you ever done my chart? Of course I have. Oh, well, I didn't know. No. Georgia asked me this afternoon, she said, if he hasn't, have him do it. And I'm sure she'll have more things to say when she comes on in about 10 minutes. Got it. Because she, um, so she, Zuckerberg... she's, she's been of the opinion that these redundancies may not be cosmic, they may be related just to me, and I say, absolutely not. Because I'm seeing a bigger frame here where culturally, I mean, look at Waukesha right now. Things are happening. There are trend curves. From it to be focused on one stupid little human being, is a, you know, as, as Jodie Foster said in the movie, it's an awful waste of space, or in this sense, a waste of hyperdimensional. So Mark Zuckerberg was born May 14th, 1984, um, but it's a date with no time. There is no recorded time in any of the uh, astrological databases that um, I would go to. If there was, it would appear in one of them. Um, he does have, he has a very interesting chart because his chart is what we would call um, a seesaw geometry. He has uh, five planets, uh, four planets on one side and, and about five planets um, kind of uh, opposite. So there's definitely empty space with things pulling in two directions. Um, but although he is a Taurus, he has a lot of stuff in Scorpio, which has to do with that control. Um, and um, uh, and yes, he has some of that seventh harmonic uh, septile stuff in his chart, regardless of the fact that we don't know what time of day. But see, they, big... all these guys, some of them move so slowly, it doesn't matter if we don't know the exact time. It's a window. Well, that's right. What, what the time of day would give us though would be angles to the um a, a, a horizon you know the and the um azimuth the uh, uh midheaven and the nadir um and it would also give us an angle to the moon uh okay so do, let's yeah. let's invert the equation let let's you because i obviously can't do this you pick the most optimum time for him to have been born for the no, seven can't do that you can't yeah why not? Well, I it would it would it would, it would take more than a, a, a five minutes in a radio show to. No, I don't to, mean now. You know, this is work for in progress. When you come back on in a, a month or two, or like the end of the year, when we see what what the hell went on on the twenty fourth. What, what actually happened? And yeah. then we invert the equation. Remember, science is nothing if it's not prediction. Between now and then, through some source, you can find when he was born. Nothing about anybody, certainly a public person, is secret for long. Someone out there knows when Mark Zuckerberg was born. So you do the chart, assuming the most optimum sevens, and then see if that matches within a window, within an error bar, when the data comes in, when he was born. In other words, you retro-predict his pattern if, in fact, he's got upstairs connections. Got it. Did you know that he was red-green colorblind? No. Which is why apparently Facebook emphasizes uh, the blues. <laughs> no, I'm reading this. I'm reading this on the on, on a tech biography. See, you can find out anything about anybody these days. There are no secrets. Yeah, well, just noise. There are, 
and get in my universe there are secrets and you you don't get to know them all always Uh, i will i will keep my ears or eyes open um but i do do well there could be somebody there could be someone in the audience that knows oh i know when mark was born so if you want to send an email to rick he's they send them to R. Levine, R-L-E-V-I-N-E, R. Levine at Star IQ, Star, S-T-A-R, IQ like intelligence, StarIQ.com. Super, super. Is that listed, by the way, in your bio? I, I need to go up and look at your bio. Yeah, probably. All right. I'm looking, looking, looking. Actually, I'm scrolling. Okay. Um, uh, I see Cairo. I see YouTube. I see... Tarot.com, I see Planet Pulse. I don't see, I see uh, no. you're on Instagram, Rick Merlin on Instagram. Yeah, my Instagram account is temporarily closed because it was stolen from me. Long story, I don't want to talk about it. Oh, okay. But 22,000 followers got stolen by someone, complicated story. Oh, my. Um, a soap yeah. opera. We love yeah, soap not, opera here. Yeah, <laughs> not for now. When, okay. When, right. I get it, when I get it back, I'm working on it. Okay. Hey, we are at the top of the hour. We're going to be joined on the other side of uh, midnight, literally, by uh, Georgia. And Robert is waiting there in the wings very patiently. Um, And so, without further ado, I'm going to tell you all again, my guest this morning is Rick Levine, probably the solar system's foremost hyperdimensional astrologer. And until someone emails me and says, no, I'm that, I will uh, let him have the title. You're on the other side of midnight. Boy, if you think you've heard something so far, wait till you hear the rest of the story. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland with a C, and we shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this now Sunday night, Monday morning from the Land of Enchantment. My guests this morning are Rick Levine. I think Georgia will be joining us shortly if Keith has properly connected her stream. And Robert is with us. So uh, tell you what, until we get uh, Georgia up here, because I don't see her, let me, let me see if I actually... Uh, no, I don't, uh, see. I don't see her. Hmm. Okay. So, Keith, we need to add Georgia. So, until we do that, let me, uh, let me ask, uh, uh Rick a question. Uh, Rick, uh, Robert, you heard our conversation. Uh, any thoughts? Mr. Morningstar. Unmuting helps. Mr. Morningstar. Hello, hello. Okay, Rick, I guess it's just you and me. <laughs> we will be joined we will be joined shortly by other participants. Yep. Okay, we've got we've got uh, Georgia. Georgia there? I am. There hello. you are. Hey, Georgia. Hi, Sorry, Rick. the mute button was stuck. <laughs> <laughs> and do we have no Robert worries. back? I'm here. Oh, there you are. There you are. Okay. Yeah. Well, let me maintain the same sequence. Uh, Robert, your thoughts so far, and then we'll segue to Georgia. Well, well, my thoughts so far, thanks to Rick Levine for reminding me of my college years, because I was at Fordham University from 1967 into the early 70s when I graduated. That's what I was at Stony Brook. Yeah, and guess who was the head of the first communications department in the United States? Marshall McLuhan. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. He was a presence, and I took classes. Uh, His daughter, Elizabeth, uh, was attending uh, Fordham University at the time, and I crossed paths with him. I I really wasn't sure what a communications department was about. It was a new thing. It was a new field. And, um, but I picked up his book and, uh, it influenced me very, very deeply. And, uh, so I have been seeing the world through McLuhan's eyes, uh, ever since 1967, 68. Yeah, me too. I saw him lecture, um, in 1968 and, uh, the Gutenberg galaxy, which was, um, his book about how the printing press mechanized, uh, seeing is believing and the beginning of the uh, disenchantment, <laughs> you know, of the universe, of, of nature. Um, the book, The Gutenberg Galaxy, was amazingly powerful and scholarly. And God, I think I probably have probably 10 or 12 of his books. I've read them all. He's just brilliant. Maybe we the should other... all tonight start a McLuhan fan club. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I actually am, yeah, um, in... Um, um, Marshall McLuhan's um, uh, grandson runs the library, and you can support his work on Patreon, which I do. Mm. The thing that McLuhan inspired me to pursue was uh, mass media. Yeah. Uh, the other part you mentioned is uh, C.G. Jung, and right here at my right, left hand, I have uh, the Red Book. And yep. so uh, my degree is in psychology. Mine is too. And I, yeah, and I actually was going to be, I was going, I was heading to the Jungian Institute in Chicago 
but I got sidetracked by by astrology to in a major way. He went yeah, through the hyperdimensional doorway. Here and I knew Dr. Carlos Osis, who was a really strange bird, I must say. You know, he when uh, we met, he had this look in his eyes. He was like, "Wow, this is the real mad German scientist, Dr. Carlos Osis." Osis. Um, I wanted to add this astronomically. They, the, there's an imprint of death all over this day because of the assassination of President Kennedy. I mentioned the assassination of Osiris. According to star date, Mars transits Antares and Scorpio. But the other very important date, which is the date of revenge. If you read a book by John J. Robinson called Born in Blood, he reveals November 22nd, 1963, was the 656th anniversary of the execution of Jacques de Molay and the Templars. Ah. So that is, see, there's something about this uh, group of intellects that is fascinated by death. It's actually a death cult. Um, the significance of the black sun, you know, the black hole behind Scorpio is also important. But do you know that the landing on the moon, we all know it landed on January, uh, July 20th of 1969. Do you know what anniversary that was? Yeah, it's another Osirian date. Well, it's the, it was the 25th anniversary of Operation Valkyrie, the attempted assassination of Adolf Hitler. Mm, exactly. Yes. Which so came out in the movie with Tom Cruise, for those that relate to movies. Hey, let uh, let me move on to Georgia. Georgia, you've been listening, I presume. Yes. What are your thoughts? He said, <laughs> opening the door wide. <laughs> well, uh, I think what I can bring to the table tonight is uh, stuff about the National Cathedral, because not only has it figured recently as uh, a site of broadcast, but um, on Christmas Eve, they have a midnight mass, and there's some very interesting things about this cathedral and why the site is important. Yeah, let me, for those who may be joining us late, let me do the setup here. The National Cathedral last week on the 10th of November was the site of this uh, two-hour conference, which is on YouTube, linked up in my uh, section tonight of Radio with Pictures, where a whole bunch of luminaries and government leaders and the head of NASA and the DNI, the director of national intelligence, um, and Abby Loeb, the you know ET guy from Harvard who thinks Oumuamua was an ancient spacecraft, like I do, but for totally different reasons, they all got together and they had this conference on our future in space, including, by the way, Jeff Bezos was part of that panel. You know, it's kind of, why wasn't Musk there? Anyway, so they decided for some weird reason to hold this not at the National, at the Kennedy Center or not at Howard University or at Georgetown, but at the National Cathedral, an Episcopal Cathedral um, that was built in the first part of the uh, 20th century, and which is kind of the, the centerpiece of national pageants. Uh, uh, presidents have been have had their funerals there. George H.W. Uh, Bush, his funeral was there. John McCain, Senator McCain. So when I looked at this, it just seemed to me, good grief, 
this is like a mixing of the hyperdimensional, the spiritual, the nuts and bolts ufology, the new national security interests, all glommed together at this incredibly important spiritual place of extra-dimensional connection, the cathedral. And then Georgia blew my mind by saying, but did you know it's this? And did you know it's that? And did you know it's connected to... And I did not know any of that. So have at it, Georgia. (laughs) Well, first of all, uh, the cathedral is built on a hill called Mount St. Albans. Alban is, or Alba, is the old name for white. Like Rome, the D.C. area has... Uh, seven hills, and Mount St. Albans is the highest, so it's on the highest ground of the Washington, D.C. area. Also, it is a real Gothic cathedral, even though it's new. Now, in Europe, the Gothic cathedrals, the architecture uh, of the, the, the plan, the architectural plan, was two types. And they were traditionally uh, ad quadratum and ad triangulum, meaning there's an architecture based on the square and an architecture <laughs> based on the triangle. And the, and the Gothic cathedrals are an overlay of both, which makes them a seven. Oh, you're kidding. No. The seventh no. of a seventh hill, seven being the symmetry spins of a tetrahedron yeah. and all the other okay. stuff. Okay. Oh, there's so much more. Um, it was started on September 29th, 1907. September 29th is Michael. 1907? Yes. Oh. And uh, St. Michael's Day is, of course, dedicated to the Archangel Michael. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt was involved in the ceremony of the Foundation Stone. And uh, he talked about one of his quotes was, Godspeed the work begun this noon. Now, in Masonic ritual, in certain Masonic rituals, there are certain rituals that are done at noon when no shadow is cast. And that's very symbolic, that there's no shadow on the work if it's done at noon. And that point on Earth is pointed directly at the sun. Yeah. So September 29th, it was started. It was finished 83 years later on September 29th with another (laughs) Masonic ceremony, even though, you know, this repairs and new stuff is added all the time. It was really open to the public in 1990. So that's, you know, 83 years also on St. Michael's Day. Now, uh, I've got some pictures up. So if your listeners will go to Radio with Pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can take a look at this. The first picture shows it's an aerial view of the cathedral itself. Hang on, hang on. for is... people who are new to this, you go to the other side of midnight.com, click on tonight's banner, uh, which is all about the hyperdimensional messages at Christmas or the uh, thir- uh, 21st, Sunday the 21st. Click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page. Click on fast links under the replication of the banner, for Georgia, that will take you to her section of Radio with Pictures. Number one is an aerial view of the National Cathedral. Number two is an interior, and we go from there. Right. The, the first one is, is the cathedral itself, and you can see that it's, it's in the shape of a cross. And these are, all, these are all clickable, so they get really big. 
Yeah. So all the Gothic cathedrals were built in the shape of this cross. Now, where the, the arms of the cross meet is usually the high altar, uh, which is a very important point. Uh, for instance, the abbey grounds at Glastonbury, the high altar is where the ley lines, the big ley lines, the Michael and Mary lines cross one another over the high altar. So the high altar is significant. It's where the arms of the cross cross. However, right underneath the high altar, underground, is usually a chapel that is more esoteric. And in the National Cathedral, the chapel under the high altar is dedicated to Joseph of Arimathea. Now, that's kind of an obscure saint, unless you know about mystic Christianity. All religions have sort of an outer court and a deeper inner court. Uh, In Christianity, the outer court uh, is the, the lower heart center, which is St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Uh, the head center, the heart center within the head, was at Glastonbury, England. Now, Joseph of Arimathea was Jesus's uncle. He was the one that supplied the tomb and probably the expensive cloth uh, of the shroud. He was a very interesting guy, too long to go into Mm -hmm. in the time that we have. But after the crucifixion, when the disciples were being persecuted, he was temporarily put in prison. And when he was released, uh, because he held offices in the Sanhedrin and in uh, in the the Roman uh, uh, social circles, he was extremely wealthy. Uh, He owned tin mines in Cornwall, England, and Rome bought a lot of its tin from Joseph of Arimathea. He had his own ships and all kinds of stuff. Kind of like the Russian oligarch who has captured the aluminum market. There you go. So uh, after he was let out of prison, he took some of the disciples, including Lazarus and Mary Magdalene, and got in his ships and went to some place which was safe, which was his tin mines in England. He hmm. stopped off in France and let off Mary Magdalene, who started the whole Holy Blood, Holy Grail kind of story. Uh, and Lazarus, of course, became the first bishop uh, there in France. He went on to England and landed at... Joseph at, did. Joseph did, with, uh, with some think uh, Mary also the mother of Jesus, um, that's a whole nother story, but he certainly <laughs> went on to England and founded the first Christian church that was actually founded before St. Peter's in Rome. It's the oldest um, Christian settlement. And so under our national cathedral, we've got a chapel dedicated to Joseph of Arimathea, and there's some stained glass windows from a church in England that show him. Joseph of Arimathea is all tied up with the whole Holy Grail legend. It's said that he took with him uh, from the Holy Land two cruets filled with the blood and uh, uh, sweat of of Jesus on the cross and um, said that he brought the, the chalice, of which was the Holy Grail, the chalice of the Last Supper, and uh, 
placed it in the sacred well, Chalice Well, in Glastonbury. Again, Glastonbury is a major, major esoteric uh, point. Uh, it's said that in ancient times, the Greeks did pilgrimages to Tibet in the autumn and to Glastonbury in the spring equinox. That's, so, that's, that's the place in England with this teardropped hill with the yeah, spire the sticking up on top. Yes, that that tour, you know, there's this huge, oh, we could talk about Glastonbury forever, <laughs> but there's a huge uh, zodiac carved into the landscape in, in Glastonbury. It's 12 miles across. And it's so accurate that if you put a star map over it, the stars fit perfectly on the landscape, which is both natural and man-enhanced, okay? Uh, the sign of Aquarius in that Glastonbury zodiac is a phoenix, oh. and, the eye of, and the eye of the phoenix is Glastonbury Tor. Hmm. So, and there used to be a standing stone circle, a Druid circle, or earlier, on top of Glastonbury Tor, the Christians turned, uh, pulled it down, uh, made a, a, a church out of some of the stones, but an earthquake came along and leveled the church, <laughs> but left the tower, so the Druids still have their standing stone on top of Glastonbury Tor. Oh, my. Okay, item, items three and four in your section are the stained glass window depicting Joseph of Arimathea. Yeah. Now, Joseph of Arimathea landed on Wirial Hill, which was one of the fishes in the sign of Pisces on the Glastonbury Zodiac. And the story is he planted his staff and it flowered into this thorn tree uh, called the Glastonbury Thorn, which it, it's, a, it's a Middle Eastern hawthorn that blooms at Christmas. And the tradition is that... Blooms uh, on Christmas are brought to the Queen. Okay, someone has their mic open. I'm hearing noises, so if you'd mute, that'd be useful. Yeah, yeah, I'm hearing that too. Uh, anyway, so uh, Joseph of Arimathea was also responsible for the Glastonbury thorn tree on Wirial Hill, which is one of the fishes part of the Glastonbury uh, complex. The Picture number five is a chair um, in the St. Joseph chapel, chapel, just to the side, which is actually made from the stone of Glastonbury Abbey. Oh, my. And uh, it, it just sits there, you know, unremarked, mm -hmm. just, you know, sitting there being its sweet little self. So in 1907, uh, when they built this place, started it, they literally brought this stone from England, from Glastonbury, yeah. to the U.S., and then the Master Masons sculpted it into a chair. I don't know how much was already shaped uh, in England, but it is from the stone of Glastonbury Abbey. Hmm. And that's a whole interesting thing, too, because um, the... Uh, archaeology on the site of Glastonbury Abbey. Glastonbury Abbey was one of the key places of pilgrimage until Henry VIII, you know, burned it to the ground because they wouldn't give up its secrets. Um, mm. And so it laid, you know, pretty covered over 
for a long time until the early part of the century when they started excavating the site of Glastonbury Abbey. And the, the head guy that was the uh, excavator, by a, a fellow by the name of Bly Bond, was uncanny in what he could discover. He, he knew just where to dig. It was like hmm. a, amazing and Did magical. he use dowsing? No, but uh, it did come out after he knew exactly where to find the old kitchen and, you know, the monk's quarters and all this kind of stuff, getting information via automatic writing from hmm. a monk, a monk that lived in Glastonbury Abbey, but the monk told him he wasn't dead. He was living in a parallel time. Oh, my. Yeah. Uh, Talk and about hyperdimensional sourcing. <laughs> exactly. He and of course Blybon completely lost all credibility. Of he's, course. He's now been revived a little bit and they have a plaque on the Abbey grounds, you know, acknowledging him. But um hmm. you know, you've got overlay of overlay of these hyperdimensional kind of um accoutrements, you know. Uh another thing, uh the next picture uh, is a memorial. Helen Keller and Annie, um, her teacher, are buried uh, in this area. It says right are interred in the columbarium, barium, yeah. behind yeah. the chapel, the Saint Joseph Chapel. So they're on, they're on, they're on the grounds under the cathedral. Yeah. Boy, a lot of place took place to just pick this place at random for a conference. <clears throat> Yeah, just a small a small little chapel that, you know, nobody really knows too much about, but it's like the heart of this cathedral. The the next picture of course is the famous uh window, the stained glass window that has the moon rock in it. And uh you can see the 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 rock uh from the moon right at the center of the big red disc there in the stained glass itself. I wonder what uh, the symbology of all that glass means. <laughs> well, it looks like, it looks that red spiral. It looks like a um, like like a golden mean proportion spiral. Yes, exactly. The moon rock at the eye. Exactly. And How of course, special. <laughs> the golden mean is you know primary in esoteric architecture. Everywhere. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the the next picture is. Um, uh, Part of what's on the ceiling, it's uh, one of the bosses where the, the, uh, the, the spines kind of come together on the ceiling. And, of course, it's a space man. So our National Cathedral is combining the very old esoteric with the new. Do we know when that was created? I don't know when this particular one was created, that, that particular boss. But the next one is the Darth Vader gargoyle. <laughs> Which had with, to be after 1976. Yes, yes. There was a, a National Geographic contest uh, to come up with designs for gargoyles. And this 13-year-old boy came up with Darth Vader and he won the contest. Hmm. So we have a Darth Vader gargoyle on our National Cathedral. And the final picture is this thorn tree, which is a cutting of the original St. Joseph tree on Weary Hill in Glastonbury. 
This is on the Abbey grounds right between the cathedral and a boys' school called uh, St. Albans School. And this is uh, an actual cutting of that thorn tree. That, Which again, will bloom this actually, Christmas? It's supposed to. Oh, how special. Oh. The, the, uh, you can't the make this stuff up. No, the Glastonbury thorn in England, was the, the one on Weriel Hill was savaged uh, a, a, a year or two ago. Oh. Uh, but there are cuttings on the Abbey grounds and on the grounds of a of the St. Michael's Church in the village there. Uh, so there are cuttings around the world. But again, you've got all of these ties to Glastonbury and St. Joseph totally unexplained. They're there. Mm. And the final thing that I wanted to show you is the final picture, and you'll, you'll have to make that bigger to yep. see it. Just click on it. It gets nice and big. Yes, it does. Uh, this is just a quick little drawing I did. I want the, the shape and the architecture of the, glass and, of the uh, National Cathedral is a tesseract. You're kidding. No, all of the Gothic cathedrals are tesseracts which is a quick way of saying what a tesseract is. It's how a four-dimensional figure looks in three dimensions. It's a hyper-dimensional cube. Yes. Remember, you, was, who was, was it Picasso who did uh, Christ on a tesseract? No, it was Dolly. Dolly, Salvador. Dolly on the, yes. He was, he was crucified on a tesseract with a Masonic checkerboard floor underneath, by the way. Which is incredibly yes. important symbolically in terms of everything we've been discussing. Yeah, exactly. So you can see in my little drawing there, it's not only a tesseract. Um, so wait, let's, let's not skip over this. A cross in three dimensions, a standard Christian cross in higher dimensions, in four dimensions, is really a cube, which, of course, is two interwoven tetrahedrons, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Huge information in a very Emily Dickinson fashion. If you wanted to, to, to bring together the other dimension and this one, you would want a building that's a tesseract. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, uh, we're, we're getting really close to the, to the. Yeah, we can, we can pick this up on the other side. We got, we got about a minute here. Keep okay. Going. Cause, cause I, I, I do want to explore this just a little bit. You we have, we have more time. We have time. You can see in my drawing there, you, you've got the crypt underneath, which is. Who's, who, who's in the crypt? Well, that's the St. Joseph Chapel with Helen Keller and Annie. Oh, so that okay, the crypt is I see I think of a crypt as a place where someone's buried. But you're saying that the crypt, which is the lower chamber, has the yeah. chapel and the Yeah. Okay. All right. Exactly. Now isn't there a rumor that St. Peter is buried in the crypt under uh St. Peter's in in, yeah. uh, in yeah. Rome? Yeah. Okay. Wait. So Helen Keller and her friend Anne are buried. Annie Sullivan, yeah. Now, why is that? What is so special hyperdimensionally about uh, Helen Keller which, and Annie? Woodrow Wilson is also buried on the, on the ground somewhere. Uh, not, not right there, but um, he's the only president that's buried at the National Cathedral grounds. Hmm. Okay, guys, hold it there. My guest this morning, not exactly tumor, tumorous to mention, 
uh, George Lambert, our resident metaphysician, Rick Levine, our resident hyperdimensional astrologer, Robert Morningstar, our resident uh, military tactician and uh, reporter par excellence on the edges of reality. And, of course, we've got Keith Morgan with us, who may or may not uh, dip in and say something relevant and pertinent. And Kinthea is there in the background. You are on the other side of midnight. Wait till you see what's going to happen in the next half hour. We shall return. other side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode, 2.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. Last half hour to go on this Sunday night, Monday morning. It is now officially in the land of enchantment, the 22nd of November, the 58th anniversary of the death of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Georgia, you were saying. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to finish up with a couple of points. Again, if you look at the drawing in the last picture under my uh uh, my picture, my pictures there. Um, we're looking again at a tesseract, mm-hmm. and uh, traditionally, the different doors from the different directions in the Gothic cathedrals of Europe were for different ranks of people. Um, the ground level main entrance there um, to the west was for average humanity to enter the cathedral. And as you walk through that uh, doorway, the moon rock window is about halfway down on the right, which places it not too far off the, the uh, high altar 
and toward the south. Uh, the, the doorway to the north was for knights uh, to enter. The doorway to the east was um, for the, uh, the bishops and the priests. And, uh, excuse me, um, the, uh, the one to the east is where the Mary Chapel usually is. There's almost always in all Gothic cathedrals a chapel dedicated to, to Mary. And sometimes it's a little obscure as to which Mary it is. The south is the one for the, the bishops and the priests. This also relates to the symbols on the tarot cards. Um, the door to the south, the symbol is the wand or staff, the bishop's cross, uh, crozier. Um, the one to the west is cups. Usually the baptismal font is toward that end. Uh, the one for the knights, swords, of course, um, the element air. And the east is pentacles, or older than pentacles is the black and white checkerboard called by the Welch the Guispawil, or the Board of Fate. Hmm. Um, Which, of course, then, is a Masonic floor pattern. Yeah, exactly. And, and the chessboard. Yes. Yes, it is. And the little blip that I have written under there, in all um, temple floors, you have the four directions, north, south, east, and west. And then you have the altar in the center. That makes five directions, north, south, east, west, and center. Two more up and down for three dimensions. Now you have the mystical seven. But if you add two more directions in and out of this dimension, then you have the number nine of the initiate <laughs> or the adept. Hmm. And the doorway in and out is always at the center of the tesseract. Hmm. So I find it very interesting that um, this particular building, with everything that is involved with it, was chosen for that conference. Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, it's like a huge Dickinsonian message. Pay attention to what starts here. And not to mention that there's going to be a midnight mass on Christmas Eve, Just where a, you have a whole bunch of people being very aspirational and invocative of peace and goodwill and all that stuff. Hmm. Rick, well, thoughts? there is a Saturn Uranus square. I was just going to say, Rick, that's why I'm going to you. Yes. And we add the Saturn Uranus square, you know, construct, reality, rigidity. And revolution, as you said before, the lightning bolt. So what the hell is going to happen? Rick? Uh, I'll let Don't you, know. you dare say, damn if I know. <laughs> Damned if any of us know. Yeah, but I'm getting you on the show so you can tell us. You're supposed to know. Well, I hate, I hate to disappoint, but get used to it. Um, you know, I, Rick, I Rick know. you said you said something really interesting earlier that. Um, oh, this, thanks for bailing me out. <laughs> this, this, this Christmas is sort of a setup of things, and we might not see things land for a bit. Oh, that. that's where I have new news. Ding, ding, yeah. ding, ding, ding. Okay, and I'm I'm not telling tales out of school because I got permission to reveal this tonight. 
during this show, during this segment, Georgia, we saved it for your segment. Um, I had an extensive conversation with Bruce Solheim. I really wanted to have him part of the conversation. And because of family stuff and all that, he could not be here. But what he did do specifically, uh, per my request, is he talked to his higher dimensional sources, particularly this guy, Ansar, who now is t- talking to himself as a very old relative, kind of you know affirmation of the family model. And he asked him specifically, because I said, you gotta be very specific, what the hell is going to happen on Christmas Eve with this square business? And Ansar, again, take it with a grain of salt, what you will, but unprompted because I didn't tell Bruce what I was looking for. I just said, what the hell is going to happen on the 24th? Ansar, through him, reported two things which really got my attention. One was, he said, a geothermal event. Can anybody here think of what he could mean by a geothermal event? What have we been leading our show with for the last, you know, six, eight weeks? La Palma. Could that be going to let go on the 24th? That's the first data point. The second was, he said, Star Wars manifest for real. And that, Robert, I want to bring you in now, could be a, you know, extension of what was done to the Russians, not by the Russians in my model. Something took out that satellite to, in, in essence, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, be a warning, be a do not pass, you know, go, danger, Will Robinson. If you continue what you're doing, all you guys, we will cut you off from space, from the solar system, by simply shattering spacecraft in low Earth orbit, making it impossible for you to leave the planet without getting hit and dying, i.e. they had to move the space station within hours of this event. Robert, what do you think? Well, I agree with you. I I saw it as a warning. Uh, Do not enter, no trespassing. Uh, Stay stay where you are and don't have any ideas, uh, get any ideas of coming up... uh, to the uh, higher realms. That's that's what I think we're being told to stay put. Hmm. Okay, Georgia. Well, I, that's certainly possible. the The metaphysical model is that the spiritual hierarchy has a has a conclave every hundred years, and the next one is in 2025. And back in the 1930s, it was written that the agenda. Uh, for that particular conclave has to do with the reemergence of the spiritual hierarchy. Okay, can you explain a little more? We got time. What the heck is a spiritual hierarchy? Are we talking about guys without bodies that kind of hang yeah. out in the? Okay. Yeah. Uh, adepts, masters, lots of different names, communion of saints, uh, invisible college. The Rosicrucians call them the invisible college. And on a uh, terrestrial time scale, they're supposed to get together and. Do what every hundred years? There, there's a, a, a conclave that is about every hundred years. Yeah. Why is it a hundred years? Uh, not sure about that. I mean, why isn't something interesting like seventy years or sixty years know. or a hundred and twenty years or why a century? But, but 
but back in the 30s and 40s, it was written that the next one would be in 2025. And again, that the agenda would be the reemergence of the spiritual hierarchy, which was in physical uh, appearance and operation during the last root race, which was the Atlantean root race, before we kind of got put on quarantine. Okay, I maybe? think I understand what you're saying, but be more explicit. In other words, these guys went invisible, and they're now going to take a more center stage in 3D terrestrial affairs? Right. Oh. They're, they're going to begin the process. And it's all tied up in Christian terms with the reappearance of the Christ and the Messiah for the age that we're moving into. And all of that is all tied up in the same bundle. Hmm. But the point is that it has to do with the reemergence of something that's been hidden, guiding force on this planet, and reemerging into human day-to-day consciousness see that would not be a graduate sorry go ahead at least at least the plans of that would would be discussed in 2025 see that would not be a gradual change that would be one hell of a paradigm shift that would be a frequency break you know going along with the model that these transitions are not gradual they're sudden like like um heterodyning in radio talk and that also corresponds to the so-called ending of the Kali Yuga. Right. So is it going to be a sudden, because this, this would be like all, this would be Katie bar the door time. This would be everything anybody's ever suspected about higher dimensional realms suddenly right there in your face, undeniable. And that's what Ansar said. It's going to be undeniable, except he's pegging it to this coming December 24th. Now, I've gone back and I've asked Bruce, please get him to be more specific. Because one of the things that I find so irritating about all these things, they're so damn vague. They're so Dickinsonian. Well, the this, this story is that the, that the spiritual hierarchy can propose, but humanity has free will and a lot of decisions so have to be... So this is presenting us with what we've been saying for months and months and months and months, choice yes. our free will choice yes but how do you make the right free will choice in a, a land and an environment where deception is in every direction well in times when there's a lot of illusion around every human being has to bounce their choices off their own inner sense of rightness and that's both a head and a heart approach you can't have one or the other that has to be both together Hmm. so you need consciousness and science you could put it that way too yes i think i just did rick what do you think well i i i think that consciousness doesn't have (laughs) It, 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 you're assuming that science is head and consciousness is heart, and I don't know that that's necessarily the case. Well, how but, would you how would you reframe the equation then? I don't know. I thought Georgia did it fine. <laughs> well, you know, the the head has to do with. I mean, if we're talking the the physicality of a human being, you've got you know the the brain and the cerebrospinal nervous system. And then you've got the life force, which is anchored in the heart and the bloodstream. That's the alchemical red and white. Mm-hmm. And, and they have to work together. It can't be one or the other. Now, in earlier times, the, 
uh, heart path was the mystic path that uh, ended up in sainthood. Uh, the uh, head path was the occult path, which was the path of the sage. It's, it's both love and knowledge working together. Um, you can't have one without the other. Hmm. Robert, you're well up on the Eastern traditions, Tai Chi, et cetera, et cetera. What do they have to say about this conundrum? Well, you know, they don't the they don't really have these um, these prophecies about uh, end times or uh, cataclysmic uh, destructions. They're they're more even killed. They see them. They see things as cyclic. Tai Chi believes that the the yin and yang interact and go back and forth like waves. They're there's a misconception that, that Tai Chi is a dualistic philosophy, but in reality, it involves a trinity. While people look at the circle of the yin and yang and see the black and the, and the white fish, we call the fish Tai Chi fish, and, and the eye of each uh, fish is the opposite color, it actually is a trinity because you could not perceive the yin and yang unless you had the ground, the background, the white, the white of the paper mm-hmm. is another uh, all-encompassing element that sustains it. And it also defines the way, kind of like a membrane between the yin and yang. The I Ching says that um, the Tai Chi lets now the light and then the dark appear. But the way is... the this membrane between the two that never allows either one to overwhelm the other. So in that regard, there are not, they're not uh, prone to making end of the world prophecies. See, that's the third time you said it. None of us mentioned end of the world. We talked about a paradigm shift. You feel it. You heard it through the lens of catastrophe. I'm just saying catastrophe in, in La Palma. And, and in regard to La Palma and a tidal wave from La Palma, I really don't believe that it would be as cataclysmic as some people think. Because if you know the wave functions, the wave can bottom out. And once that wave uh, initiated by the, let's say, the, the slip of lava shield off uh, La Palma uh, stands out, it's going to enter the deeper reaches of the uh, Atlantic Ocean. Right. So once it gets offshore, off the continental shelf uh, of Africa, it plunges to 6,000 feet and then 9,000 feet. Then it'll encounter the mid-Atlantic ridge. And then it would have to climb up the uh, continental shelf of the United States. And I think that that would dissipate a lot of the force. So I'm more inclined uh, to believe that it would be a swell. Well, let me, let me, well, that's what, that's what some of the newer modeling is saying. In fact, I posted a, a yes, I know. geological analysis from a couple, three weeks ago, just so we keep an even scale. Remember, I believe in the First Amendment, even in publishing things I don't agree with. So, but let me give you another scenario. Suppose the worst case scenario, La Palma, and where's that excess noise coming from? Someone should stop sifting around their spoons, okay? Um, suppose you presume the worst case scenario for La Palma, okay? okay. Suppose we then marry the Ansar prediction of that, you know, a geothermal with the Star Wars. Suppose there is a literal extraterrestrial intervention that calms the waters, reduces the wave, 
saves the East Coast from catastrophe. In other words, a messianic intervention by someone claiming to be, you know, aliens, extraterrestrials, whatever. But in fact, it's a mechanism to assert further control over a very, very gullible public. That's an equally plausible in this totally implausible set of scenarios scenario. Well, you know, you're, uh, you're citing the, the vision of uh, the abyss, James Cameron's uh, movie. If you recall at the end, they, they raise a, a thousand foot high tidal wave yep. and then just yep. stop it. Yep. And then it dissipates. But um, here's a little interesting uh, thing. There's a, there's a uh, movie. It's called UFOs Over Russia. It was made by an Italian uh, filmmaker. And he interviewed a KGB. This was back in 1993-94 after the fall of the Soviet Union. And the military and the KGB were given permission to discuss UFOs. And they asked this KGB guy uh, what the KGB and the Soviet Union thought about UFOs. And he grew very, very uncomfortable. And he said, well, why didn't you tell, why didn't you tell your people about it? And he said, because in reality, we believe that UFOs signal the second coming of Christ. And we can't tell that to the people after having denied God for 75 years. Oh, my God. And also, Richard, I pointed out to you, they have films, Russian films taken of UFOs going through those really strange changes of uh, being a UFO splitting into two and then remerging almost as if they can turn into a plasma, mm-hmm. divide themselves and join again. It's an excellent, excellent documentary. It can be seen on Amazon, UFOs over Russia by uh, Giorgio Santo, San Giovanni. <laughs> okay, thanks. Well, we should and probably... You, you, you know, it's really interesting that you bring that up because there's another example of this overlap between the reemergence of the spiritual guidance of this planet and disclosure and you know all of that is kind of dovetailing into one another the Jacques Vallée mixture of spiritual and ufology model mm-hmm. and and you know when 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 um when uh, uh he was talking about the yin and yang and the 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 membrane that that binds them we have the same thing in the west with the black and white checkerboard of the masonic floor uh the mortar between the squares is what binds them and makes it a trinity it's three elements in other words yeah hmm rick well i've been thinking in all this that you know since we came into this through the saturn square uranus that squares um, are basically the maximum tension point or the maximum stress point, but the real way to manage a square is not through either or; it's through both and. You know, and 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 part of the problem when I kind of jokingly said that we've flipped out in reference to McLuhan and we're schizophrenic, the uh, the question becomes: How do we create a reality? that goes to that Trinity point that takes in both Saturn and Uranus and acknowledges, um, you know, different perspectives, but somehow uh, combines them into some workable force that can aim at some future common good. Um, You know, I don't, I don't see the, the binary dichotomies that we're facing as a culture. Um, You can call it the Saturn Uranus square. And I think that that's accurate. 
but I don't see them resolving, um, you know, in, in any way, at least in the near future. Yeah, but you're talking about, in essence, an overarching e pluribus unum. Yes. Out of many, which is what's supposed to be the founding symbology of the United States of America. And this conference kicked off, I'm telling you, it was not picked as a random choice. Could not be. No way. Someone's guiding yeah. this train. So the question in the remaining few minutes here is, anybody want to guess what's coming next? No. Darn. I want to say something, Richard. I just got a message from John F. Kennedy, and it relates to something that you said earlier in the program, quoting Dan Rather. He said the camera never blinks. Mm-hmm. JFK says Dan Rather is lying because the camera blinks every time it takes a frame. It takes a frame, it blinks, it takes a well, frame. Well, come on, let's not, let's not extend the metaphor too far, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, he does lie. All he right. lied. We, we, we have a few minutes. So what have we left on the table? What, what would she leave everyone tonight as a prelude to the next time we convene this uh, round table? Well, I, I, I think, Richard, coming back to what I was saying quite seriously, is that, you know, um, there's this whole m- metaphor of Jung's, you know, that uh, in the last book he wrote before he died, The Undiscovered Self, he, he made a case for the fact that wars would never be ended by treaties or politicians. They would be ended when the wars in the individual psyche, you know, were resolved. And from that standpoint, I think the question becomes, how do we each uh, individually um, find places in our own life where we can look at these vast gulfs, these differences of, uh, of opinion, whether they be you know, political or economic or, or cultural or however, and, and how do we make room for oh, both I'm points so, of view to exist? I'm so glad you brought that up because it goes back to my last item in my section, the Gillibrand proposal to the current Defense Authorization Act, because on her panel of co-sponsors of the bill are both Republicans and Democrats, including the really rabid Trump supporters and the really negative Trump people. And this is a common area where they're all united. And to me, it's fulfillment of the wish which is this is the one thing against which we all can look humbly and say we have more in common with each other than this great unknown, regardless of the soap opera promulgated by anybody, government or otherwise, as to what it means. We will all go through it together in a commonality, which this is literally making manifest in the most dissension place on the planet right now, which is Washington, D.C. Which brings to mind Ronald Reagan's speech at the United Nations about how the world would unite if we were not threatened by, if we were threatened by an alien force from outer space. And then he said, is that force not already here? And we call it war. Yeah. No, I mean, again, more Dickinsonian stuff. So, Georgia, I think we've got time for some interesting thoughts on your behalf. Well, all I can say is that, as you've said so many times, Richard, we're in this time where 
the good are getting gooder and the bad are getting better. <laughs> and uh, it's it's time that, that we recognize that we are a one life, regardless of outer appearances. Humanity is a one life. And no matter how dark things may appear at any particular moment in time, no matter how strong the recalcitrant personality of humanity is, it's not stronger than the soul who built it. And the soul will win out eventually. It's just how uncomfortable are we going to make it until we get there? Yeah. Well, I don't have any science to back this up, but my feeling, Robert, is you you just touched on something. What was one of the watchwords of the Reagan years? Let's win one for the Gipper. Win one for the Gipper. Well, it's time, I think, for the good guys in this window when reality will be changed by revolution peaking on that sacred night, which is sacred, even if they don't admit it, to cultures and people all over the planet. I don't, I, I think there's such inertia and momentum behind something wonderful coming, that line from 2010. Remember when, uh, yeah, when, yeah. when Bowman appears? Bowman, yes. which, is Sag, which is Sagittarius, appeared yeah. to uh, the head of NASA in, in that Andrew iteration. Black. Something Andrew wonderful Black. is coming. I think something wonderful is coming, and even if it is not fully manifest on the evening of the 24th, it will begin a process that will send ripples cascading down through time, through the 22nd year and the 24th year and the 25th year, and then all we have to do is stay tuned. And folks, we're out of time. This is the end of another weekend, another show on this Sunday night on the 24th, now the 22nd, the anniversary of John Kennedy's untimely death. Next weekend, we've got some really interesting surprises. I'm going to try to continue this what's coming theme. We'll bring in some other sourcing. So until then, remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.